for example, I noticed like early in the morning, you know, maybe even before I, I had my first cup of coffee sitting in, in front of my computer, just starting to check some websites or play some games and just sitting there. And I knew that, you know, later on, a few hours later, I'm going to be driving to, you know, this is over the weekend, I'm driving to go see my father. And I'm thinking to myself, like, tr- tr- driving? Like, I have to drive on highways and stuff? Like, do I even know how to do that? Like, it's so weird. Like, in the moment, I felt like, can I even do that? Even though I've done it a million times before, you know, driving down the highway. And it just, but in that moment, it sort of felt like, I don't know how to do that. Like, it just, it just at a weird, like, subtle, like, gut level, right? And I had to sort of remind myself, well, no, you, right? When you start driving, it just comes naturally, you know? But it's just in that moment kind of doesn't feel like I'd be able to because it's, it almost feels like once you sort of get into the into the car and turn the key, well, you don't turn the key anymore. You press a button. This, this, this is the future after all. But anyway, um, do they still have cars where you, where you put the key in and you turn it and goes, rah, 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 rah. no, I don't know. But, yeah, you get in the car, and it's like, oh, yeah, makes sense. Even though when you think about what you're doing, driving at this high speed, all these other cars around you, like, oh, it just comes naturally. So, you know, it's just weird how it's like you you don't really have that same connection to the world of driving when you're not driving. Like, why not? And this this definitely relates to – well, this was (laughs) – I was taking the shower this morning, and one of my shower thoughts related to this idea of morphic resonance. So there's this scientific theory that many would call pseudoscience. It has not been accepted by the scientific mainstream as of yet. But There's a guy named Rupert Sheldrake who has proposed another field in reality. You know, we have the magnetic field, gravitational field, electromagnetic field. He proposes a morphic field, a field of shapes, right? That, uh, that everything is connected to everything else and that anything that has a shape or a form or some sort of content it resonates with other things that already exist with that shape, right? One uh, mystery that uh, I think people thought they had solved was, you know, like when a human being is conceived, so it's an egg and a, and a sperm, and then you've seen that image of the cell dividing well, that's weird because they, they did have that kind of footage in that Luna thing. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, um, you know, you see the cell dividing into two and then four and then eight and this, you know, that geometric progression. Um, how, how, how can the shape of the human be made? And I think we thought we had figured it out in the past, right, with the discovery of DNA, the blueprint for life. And uh, that's how it works. Yeah, the shape of the person is in the DNA. Well, according to Sheldrake and other sources I have uh, found, and don't quote me on this, but this is my impression, is that as the human genome was mapped within the past, like, 20 years or so, uh, it was sort of found that no no one found uh, where these shapes are located. Uh, It doesn't seem that the genetic code actually has any uh, reference to shape in it. And again, this is... uh, I, I, I may be wrong on this, but it's just... That's my impression but that the shape of a being uh, they couldn't find in the genetic code spaces that say, oh, the arms are shaped like this and the liver is shaped like that, you know. So where the heck are these shapes coming from? So according to Sheldrake, and you can watch the videos on YouTube, Rupert Sheldrake, and uh, 
He's, he is saying that specifically in this case, the the embryo that's developing is actually accessing the uh, the morphic field and is drawing upon the shape of all other human beings, right? M- most uh, strongly, it's parents, but then relatives and then all human beings and then all life, right? All mammalian life and all life. It's all connected to sort of build up that shape, right? The morphic field is a, is, is a, is a way that instances of things can access other instances of things. It's, it's hard to, to talk about this because we, we're sort of lacking words to describe this phenomenon. But this whole thing is complicated, of course, because the science of life, and especially the origin of life, is not just scientific. It's also, what would you call it? It's, uh, it kind of forms aspects of belief and belief systems. It's sort of, you know, where did we come from? It's one of the big questions, and um, you know, there is a an urge toward an answer that does not involve God or anything religious, which I think is admirable. We should try to figure it out without without having to include God in the matter, e- even if it's just as as an exercise. Uh, and and sort of the DNA and the evolution and all that was um, became the explanation of how we got here without uh, without God. And so as knowledge on this topic is increasing, research in biology has made massive strides in the past few decades that really throw into question a lot of the, the theories. It's very hard to uh, for, the, for the old ideas, the old scientific ideas to budge even in the light of new evidence because of the importance that this matter has in a larger like cultural, sociological sense, right? But anyway, Sheldrake's theory actually, and as I have touched on this a few times over some, you know, the past couple of months on this on the show here, the idea that uh, morphic resonance, right, a- as right, sort of a godless creation, uh, right? The theory was maybe pretty solid twenty, thirty years ago, but all the new evidence has kind of chipped away at it. Morphic resonance, actually, as a scientific concept, really sort of shores up all of those holes, in my opinion, as to how as to how it could have worked. Yet still, it's rejected by the scientific mainstream. It's very interesting. But that's not necessarily the crux of what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about uh, my shower thought was about morphic fishing. Right? So let's assume morphic resonance is, is legitimate for the moment, Right? And my driving example is exactly that. Like I'm, uh, you know, when I'm sitting, when I just woke up and it's, I just woke up 10 minutes ago and I'm sitting in front of a computer, bleary-eyed, I haven't had my coffee yet. I'm not really tuned in to the driving aspect of the morphic field, right? So I can't really, it's hard to imagine being able to navigate the world of driving in New Jersey at the moment uh, because I'm not really tuned into that. It's almost like a radio, you know, you're tuning into different stations. Once you get in the car and start driving, you're, you're, you're strongly tuned in to all the other people who are driving, right? All reinforcing each other with the ability to drive and all those subtleties of driving. You notice yourself just subtly moving the wheel and the pedals and <coughs> like it just all happens, quote unquote, automatically, right? 
Now, I know traditionally you would say that, well, this is because you were trained to drive. You learned to drive, and that's how it worked. Morphic resonance would say that you by by becoming familiar with the aspects of a car and a steering wheel and a road and right all those things you're what we th- what was thought of as learning is actually resonating that you're actually re- starting to resonate with all the other people that are driving because just like if you're completely in a different circumstance like if you've never driven you're not going to resonate with the people who are currently driving right now all over the world but once you put yourself in that place of being in a car, in a driver's seat, and starting to drive, you're, start, you're starting to t- – uh, so the idea is that you need the codes to tune in to that aspect of the field. Now, this, of course, leads to a question of why all the selectivity? If we have this capacity to tune in to anything, why are we limiting ourselves? Why can't we tune into everything all the time? And this was a big topic I talked about a few weeks ago, right? This is the essence of individuality. Yes, you might imagine every human being is completely tuned into every other human being, and we'd have sort of the Borg from Star Trek or the Phyrexians from Magic the Gathering or whatever other collective minds. I know there was an episode of Rick and Morty where a whole planet was just one hive mind, right, where every instance of a being is completely tuned into every other instance. And it would seem that perhaps such a thing is possible. I mean, I suppose you could you could say, and this is an unknown, whether a human being and a human mind and a human system, an individual human, would have the capacity to tune into everything at once, right? Um, but the idea is, or even if it was somewhat selective, right, if you, for example... We're traveling and you needed to learn a language, you just tune into that language without you wouldn't have to learn it, you could just instantly resonate with it, right? That's so the idea is that it's I know this this really flies in the face, so to speak, of of everything we understand about edu- about learning and about how we learned how we learn things, right? <coughs> so the idea is that there's there's some kind of uh blocker at play here that is You'd think a, a system where we're complete it's, it's completely fluid and you go to France and then you can just tune into the other people around you that are speaking French and just start speaking French. But that would be a very different life experience, right? So this really co- goes to, I guess one of my, my, my big uh, working theories is, you know, that the kind of life we're living here as human beings is deliberately tuned to provide a specific kind of experience and we and our sort of one of the primary aspects of our experience here is individuality that is each of us is an instance of a human being who is mostly cut off from all other human beings except through uh, communication through the five senses right and otherwise we're very much uh, disconnected and in order to resonate there's a big coefficient, there's a big hurdle to resonating. That is, learning things is hard and it's difficult. Certain things are easier to learn when you're a kid, right? Learning languages, obviously, when you're a child, you can absorb. <laughs> I'm using that word absorb, but like you can resonate with languages much easier as a kid. And as you get older, your capacity to 
learn and your capacity to learn and or resonate is much more difficult, right? But that difficulty in, in resonate in resonating is it is an is an essential aspect of individuality, right? That instead of being able to resonate with anything, we resonate. It's difficult for us to resonate, and what we have resonated with was hard fought and hard fought and hard won, and and therefore everyone's going to have a very different set of resonations. Resonations. There must be a different word for that. Re- re- resonances. Yeah different set of resonances so each of us has this unique set of codes plugging into the system right and uh, and that creates again individuality in a system which seems like it would naturally as everything is connected would at, nat, at, would naturally not provide individuality right there must be some there must have been some tuning of the system to allow for this level of individuality. And I think that relates to another topic I talked about. Some radio host, I forget who it was, maybe Barry Farber or something, said that, you know, when you're feeling down and when you're feeling despair, for example, uh, it's hard to remember when you were happy. It's hard to remember when things were okay. Right? And it, and I've tried, I've, I've struggled to sort of even express in words this concept, but it is like when you're feeling a bit down you know that you have felt good in the past but it's very hard to remember or imagine feeling good and it just right it's just this would then say that when you're feeling bad you're resonating with all the people out there that are feeling bad right now right and that our as we describe a feeling of feeling good or feeling bad or feeling despair or feeling um, um, jubilation whatever the opposite of that would be Right, it is simply you're tuned into all the other people who are feeling jubilant or are feeling despair at the moment. So, whereas I find that certain types of experiences, such as uh, smells and tastes, and I and I have a specific example because I've I stopped eating, uh, you know, meat in uh, 1987, became vegetarian, and but I get I can still remember the taste of all the meats I had even now. Right, so like a taste. The last red meat I ate was a, a pork roll sandwich, known to some people in New Jersey as Taylor ham, but it's called pork roll because it says Taylor pork roll on the package. Though some people are convinced it's called Taylor ham, it's one of those. It's a Jersey thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Maybe you should worry about it. If, depending on where in Jersey you're from, you, you you would call it something different. But anyway, I can remember the taste of it perfectly, right? And is that because I'm – I know you're just saying it's a memory, but this whole – this new system is ta- is saying there are no real memories. You're re- it's, they're codes and resonances. So when I remember the taste of it, am I tuning into people who are eating it right now or is there a cross-time aspect to this reson- resonance that you can resonate not only with the present but with some degree of past and future, right? But in the case of – deep feelings it's you you it's hard to when you're resonating with one it's very hard to even imagine the other and that right there even though it's very it's very hard to it's a phenomenon that's very hard to describe or put into words that right there i think is a clue for all this stuff and i just want to say again this is all of this is theoretical <clears throat> it could be completely 
wrong, invalid, etc. I just I find it a fascinating, uh, and it because it does help to answer a lot of these uh, holes or gaps in other scientific theories, or even in just life experience itself. Anyway, this is the, this whole discussion is just to get to the morphic fishing concept, which <coughs> is that. Um, the idea is so that when you when you're put, when you're going into a situation, you're somehow tuning into other people that are in that situation, and the more you've done it, right, the more resonance you'll have with it. Uh, for example, uh, Sheldrake himself on on a recent video, within just the past couple of months, said that uh, he did feel that puzzles such as the the new the new uh, puzzle sensation uh, wordle that was bought by the New York Times, he feels that uh, when you're doing Wordle, you're resonating with everyone else in the word world doing Wordle, right? And every day there's one word that everyone, everyone is trying to figure out this one word per day. So he figured that as soon, when the puzzle first comes out at 12.01 a.m. or whatever, whatever the time is, that those people would, it would take them longer to get the answer and as the day wears on, as you start doing Wordle, you're resonating with all the other people in the world who are doing Wordle, and you should be able to get the answer faster, right? Because of all the other people that have already figured it out. And he even contacted the New York Times and said, I am a scientist, and uh, can you, would it be possible for you to, to share your logs with me so I can analyze the data to see if, uh, if this phenomenon that I'm predicting my theory, my hypothesis is that as the day goes on, people will be getting it faster. And New York Times rejected his uh, his request, saying that this is not a f- this is not a pr- something we want to uh, get involved with. So, anyway, so the idea is right: you putting yourself in a circumstance or facing a kind of a pattern it will begin to connect with. Um, instances of other people doing the same thing out there, right? And we don't know the limit of this. Is it just on Earth today? In, uh, is there, again, does it reach into the past and into the future a little bit? Or could it even reach into other worlds, other timelines, other dimensions, right? What is the extent of this morphic field that we're a part of? So what the the thought in the shower, which I sort of finally, I think this, sound, this seems kind of obvious, but I fin- I finally sort of, uh, thought of it, which is that could you do morphic fishing? That is, could you try and uh, put yourself in a circumstance which you would not normally find yourself in in the normal course of the day? but deliberately seeking out uh, different circumstances uh, such as uh, doing things, focusing on different ideas, different things, different kinds of rituals or images or tasks, but completely making them up as something you or maybe most people never did before in order to see if it begins to resonate with something out there in the morphic field. You see what I'm saying? And 
it seems to me, first and foremost, uh, and I touched on a topic like this when we did a, an Overnight Escape Central on art, that uh, I forget, ex- I, I, I was almost there with this idea, the idea that art, when, when we think of weirdness and, and weird ideas and weird experiences, right, a lot of times we think of art and especially the modern art or conceptual art, which I have been very critical of in the past, right? The idea that all of the meaningless garbage art of blank paintings and common objects thrown on the floor and a pile of towels, which I've now seen several times in recent years. When I went to the Whitney for a holiday party for my company a couple years ago, there was just a pile of towels as a work of art. And then recently looking in from the street in New York City at the office building lobbies with art, and there's another pile of towels as art, you know. So my natural thought would be that this is these are just a bunch of untalented people that want to have some sort of glory in life and want to be quote-unquote artists. They have zero talent, so they somehow, as I called it, a conspiracy of the mediocre, people with no talent banding together to play this mind game like to just with no creativity I'm going to pile up some towels and then we're going to bully everyone into thinking that it's art right that's how I used to look at it and I kind of still do look at it but anyway um, could we look at this type of art as a type of morphic fishing that is by experiencing through art something that you normally would not experience an idea, a concept, conceptual art, right? That you would perhaps begin to resonate with, um, right? Other people out there. Again, it could be in the world or in the past or the future or in other worlds, right? <coughs> that were experiencing something similar. Depending on the extent of the morphic field, right? These types of uncommon experiences could perhaps by chance um, connect you with something in terms of gaining a feeling, an understanding, a perception, right? Now, of course, this is not this, I don't believe this is the stated goal of art, but it seems that this could explain, or this is a similar idea to morphic fishing, Um you know, my my own uh, experimentation with the number 209 back in the 90s with my system called Oblivion, a super occult amusement, the idea being that I spe- had things as specifically called, uh, what are they called, friction enhancers or dashic deeds. Yeah, dashic, whatever term I use for them, they were um, little challenges, these little descriptions of things to do that were out of the ordinary. And what I observed was that by combining them with the number 209, you would have you, you would do some weird stuff like um, one of the most basic ones was called Never Been. Like, go someplace you've never been before. And then, so your challenge is to think about where have I never been before? And then you want to go there. And so that is a different type of task. So you're now resonating in a way with people who are looking to go places they've never been before, right? And I found that it caused strange sensations, perceptions, and then strange happenings around you. So now, in retrospect, can, was I em- employing a kind of morphic fishing um, 
as I did notice, there was a, a an absolutely a, a, a reaction, a phenomenon. I, I, I'm like the world reacts when you do something, when you act weird. The world, when you give the world weirdness, the the world gives you weirdness back, right? But could it all be? Uh, could it all be explained by morphic resonance? So the idea of morphic fishing is that, um, right? Specifically now, with this idea in mind that you would construct situations to to put yourself in and again this would not include anything dangerous or harmful or anything like that and that was a big point i made back in the in the um you know when i was doing obliviana that none of these things should ever be on the side of being um it was the point of it was not to be dangerous or daring or getting in trouble but it 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 would be things that you normally would never do but you wouldn't normally not do right <clears throat> around the same time i came up with that system uh, another group that were an a uh, part of the uh, the juggalos you know the fans of the insane clown posse created a game <coughs> what was it called i can't remember at the moment what it was called but it was a, in in the form of a book that they sold briefly in Hot Topic, you know, that store in the mall, Hot Topic. It was sort of a, uh, right now, if you go in there, they sell a lot of anim- anime stuff for kids, you know, teenagers. Um, their book did, in- did involve dangerous things like taking drugs and committing crimes and things like that, so it was pulled off the shelves very quickly. But I wonder, right, was I on to something that was essentially morphic fishing. So what I would say morphic fishing is, is that you would, right, start to craft these uh, things to do, these challenges, these um, these set of circumstances to be in with the goal of, right, seeing uh, how it resonates. That is, what what are you picking up? It's like sort of randomly tuning a shortwave radio, trying to find something. That would be morphic fishing, right? And that cons- and that you could start off like in a. It could be a big like imagine a big operation like in a, a warehouse kind of space, and there would be all like different rooms and things with all different kinds of decorations and furniture, and and you would set up all of these different circumstances to be in. And then observe the kind of uh, resonance you get. Do you, what feeling do you get when you? It's like a room with full of black mushroom pillows, and you're, what you want to do is 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 put ladders on the walls to form certain patterns, and like something as weird like that, and uh, and see like does that generate any kind of a feeling? And that through a, a succession, like you might have whole teams of people setting up all these different scenarios. And then recording their their sense of resonance, you know what what feelings do they get? Then you could start to tune in, and you could start to um, figure out. Well, doing this kind of y- using black mushroom pillows, you know, maybe you got to throw in some uh, like yellow banana pillows in with those mushroom pillows, and then and then it's more resonating, you know. And over time, this project could sort of t- <coughs> sort of really tune in and then the ultimate goal would be that if you really found one of these random channels in the morphic field you might be able to actually gain information 
from another place, another time, or another world using this method. And that's what was my shower thought this morning. Wow. It sounds, I don't know. I'm not really suggesting anyone do this. I just sort of, I just thought, I, it was, it, these are all themes and ideas that I've been dealing with for years, but it all sort of came together. And I'm not personally planning on embarking on such an investigation, but I thought it was an interesting, an interesting uh, concept, morphic fishing. Yeah, and and of course one one other one other f uh, phenomenon that is related to this is is drugs, you know, which I have very little experience with. I've I've never been into the drug scene personally, uh, but people describe taking certain drugs and uh, especially the more psychedelic drugs, and then gaining all of these visions and and you know information. Even that one uh, DMT, I think they call it where you wind up in this room with these weird mechanical spheres that talk to you and like everyone has the same experience when they smoke this stuff or so they say the idea that um, that drugs could sp specifically resonate with something um, which I think um, I had uh, a week or two ago I had uh, <coughs> talked about how if for example Currently, the theory of morphic resonance is, has been soundly rejected by the scientific community. And my thought on that was that if it were uh, embraced by the scientific community and research were t to be done on it, you could, for example, when we think of drugs, like these psychedelics can actually, you don't have to go through the hard process of, you know, slowly resonating with something like learning a language, learning how to drive, but that you can sort of instantly get this, this resonance that, that gives you some kind of information. The idea that, um, you know, the long posited uh, in science fiction learning pills could become a reality. That is, you could learn another language by taking a pill, right? Uh, but then this would strongly, in theory, strongly erode the individual the individuality we enjoy in this world of ours this earth of ours and that it's it would certainly uh if there's some sort of agenda at some high level to preserve individuality which on the surface sounds like a an admirable goal you know i dig individuality um <coughs> that this scientific pursuit needs to be uh, blocked and mocked and uh, ridiculed so that no one ever pursues it scientifically, right? Because, right, I think people would take those pills to learn languages, and then you could take a pill to align yourself to anything else. And uh, it would completely erode individuality, and then this would become a very different place. So that's, that's sort of a danger of it, you know. But then, sort of on, a, on the other side of this topic that I touched on recently as well, was the idea that uh, the fiction that we enjoy, right, TV shows or movies uh, are those kind of situations that resonate us. And uh, if those, if there is a, a, those in control are specifically tuning the fiction in these narratives that we watch on TV, TV series, etc., 
the streaming channels, right? If they're tuning it to sort of resonate us in certain ways as a society for societal control, you know, know, like why all of the, uh, you know, why this obsession with these fantasy worlds, you know, like like, uh, Middle Earth, J.R.R. Tolkien-type fantasy worlds that we see endlessly in our movies, of a, of, a, of a lower tech society with magic and dragons and dwarves and hobbits like is there something to that are they trying to resonate us to sort of connect with a world like that for some reason or if a world like that doesn't exist just the amount of people on this world that are sort of thinking in those terms of a world like that it just keeps that world which maybe didn't exist sort of exists in everyone's mind now these fantasy worlds of, of gnomes and flaming swords and magic potions, you know. It all sort of, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of been made to exist in the morphic field through this endless application of fiction. Anyway, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's a fascinating topic, but of course, uh, you know, it could, uh, you know, if, if it does impact individuality, maybe it's better not to pursue any of these ideas. I don't know. What do you want? I'm just connecting the dots of things I've seen on the Internet. Something else I've seen on the Internet a lot is Luna, the K-pop band, L-O-O-N-A. And... Uh, I started standing Luna, see, becoming a fan of a K-pop group. You, you stand them. You're not a fan. You stand them. So I started standing them, I think, in early 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's a group of uh, 12 members, 12 women in the group. And uh, they have a thing called the Lunaverse, which is this ongoing sort of sci-fi story about the members. Some of them are robots. Some of them can uh, teleport some of the so the you know the, and there's like sort of concepts of Eden you know the you know falling out of Eden and different universes different timelines the moon exploding so sort of this fascinating it's not really a, the story is not really very clear but it's all sort of implied in all the different music videos and stuff the 12 members were brought on one by one uh, individually and they did their own music videos and were introduced there's a thing called Luna TV where you saw the behind the scenes as each new member was added and uh, so that was in, I think it started off in 2016, actually. So it's been a long time. And then they debuted as a group in 2018, I think. And it's just been this endless series of controversies and weirdnesses. There was a video on, on, on YouTube called uh, The Inconstant Moon, I think it was called, which actually came out a few years ago, which detailed every, all the controversies, the problems, the you know, sort of the, the company. At one point, the company, like, had... Uh, owed a Japanese company, this is, you know, a Korean company, they owed a, and they're owned by a company that makes milita- a military contractor in Korea that makes munitions and weapons and stuff. But they borrowed, like, millions of dollars from this Japanese company called Donuts, and they never paid them back. And So there's just, there's been these sort of endless issues with this group, and it just continues to this day. And that's part of what makes it so fascinating. Yet, recently, the whole thing is just sort of there's a complete disaster going on now, and it just got worse. So, as you may know, I, I went to see them in Times Square in New York City 
they did a, their first world tour and uh, they were pushed beyond the level most artists would be pushed and they were all getting injured and exhausted and they couldn't do anything about it because they were under contract and these contracts are like I don't even think they would be allowed in, in, in the United States like they're so you know so strict right so anyway one of their members Chu had be- started becoming very popular on her own and wound up having to sue the company to get out of her contract because um, she was doing her own TV shows and then they were forcing her to do all this other stuff and she couldn't she couldn't deal with it so she sued them and I suppose got an injunction and was able to uh, somehow uh, get out of her contract to some degree and she didn't go on that tour so anyway uh, recently just within the past month or so um, the company Blockberry Creative that that owns Luna uh, they fired Chu they said she's out of the group and, they, and beyond that they said all these like they said she was abusive to people and this and that and that everyone was outraged by them saying that and said it wasn't true and so Chu's out and then shortly thereafter uh, uh, nine of the remaining 11 members also filed lawsuits against the company trying to get out of their contracts and everyone myself included assumed this was the end of Luna and uh, you know really just par for the course with this utterly chaotic and bizarre situation all very entertaining though but um yeah, so that's where it was. And I was like, you know, listen, it's over. We had a good run. It was very entertaining. I'm glad I, I'm glad I got into it. I think it was a good time to get into K-pop. And, you know, I know I'm not your typical K-pop fan, but anyone could be a K-pop fan. Come on. Um, anyway, and I'm glad I got to see them live. It was a mind-blowing, fantastic experience seeing them live. What a weird show. And you can go back listening, listen to my uh, review of that show from a few months back. Um, really, you know, and, and you could tell that, there was, that they were being o- overworked and stuff. But at the same time, they were performing on a stage in New York City and all these adoring fans were there. And, you know, so there's this back and forth that they're being kind of abused by their company. But they are they do have these adoring fans all over the world. Actually, Luna is more popular internationally than in Korea. Anyway... In the midst of this fairly recent situation where everyone felt Luna is <coughs> finished, the company drops a teaser that they're going to have a comeback in a few weeks uh, called Zero. Here's the video trailer. Can we get this here? Zero. The new, the new, it's a, is it a video called Zero or something? And, it, and, and here is... A cell dividing back, but a cell dividing backwards, right? And ap- apparently, they used a bunch of like uh, free stock footage to make this. This is the Origin album, Luna, the Origin album, zero. And at this point, people are like, "Don't watch the video. Don't give them any more money. Don't ever <coughs> like they're they're boycotting. There's a Luna boycott. They want to boycott <coughs> the." Uh, what happened? Mountain Dew. What? <laughs> they want to boycott uh, the entire thing and not because they figure any any sales. If, if if people are buying the CDs or watching the videos on YouTube, you're just giving money to the company, and they'll use that money to hire more lawyers to like fight the members of the group. So they're like all completely 
it's this like horrible situation where the fans now have to boycott their beloved group to to support them. <laughs> it's insane. And there's like real organized boycotts, especially on the Korean side. There's like there's the Luna Union of fans of Luna that are organizing boycotts and Apparently, you know, the, the the teaser video has done much lower numbers than previous ones because of the boycott. So it's really sad and weird that to support the group, you have to sort of boycott the group at this point. <laughs> it's so weird. So the, the, the idea that they would actually, the company now, Blockberry Creative or BBC, that they would actually um, do something like this, dump this in the midst of this, disaster is is like very disconcerting disconcerting for everyone involved let me see the origin album i don't think it's an album it only has like five tracks on it so it's another like ep let's see the first song is called zero the next call song is called freesum f-r-e-e-s-m freesum almost sounds like threesome freesum then comet b-u-r-n b-u right now and flash so i think i think everyone has sort of surmised that this this whole comeback and when they use the term comeback it just means an, a, a new release by the group it's not the same connotation of comeback uh in the west which you would consider someone had sort of fallen out of favor and now is going to make try to put on a comeback it's not like that comeback is just new release in, in k-pop um, so the thought is that perhaps this was all already done, already recorded, and the video was already made and everything. And uh, I guess consider maybe they were planning on launching this, you know, many months into this is the, like the first week of January 2023. This is going to be so they may have been planning on doing it later. Who knows, like March or April or May. But considering their group is suing them, they figured that in order to cash in they'll just release it now this is just this is just speculation and the members will have to when a comeback happens they have to do mass amounts of tv appearances performing it on tv shows doing interviews and all sorts of stuff which they will be contractually required to do <coughs> even though they're suing the company oh my god what a what a what 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 a uh what a rough situation but anyway i thought that was interesting it just it just the drama never ends with luna Anyways, in other news, um, I know on a recent episode I was talking about chewing gum of various sorts. I'm trying to remember how I got on the topic, but eventually I did uh, – oh, yeah, it was root beer chewing gum, right? That was the uh, how I got onto the topic. But I eventually got to the idea of chiclets, right? Remember chiclets were these sort of candy-coated gum that came in a little box? And then there were mini chiclets, which was this little pouch that contained thousands of little tiny chiclets. And uh, – that was always like the best. You could something you can get fairly cheaply when you're at the supermarket with your mother in the seventies, get mini chiclets, and it feels like you're getting thousands of pieces of gum at once. It was great. So I talked about it on the show and um a few days later I got an ad for like, there is a company out there that has recreated or like reverse engineered and has re released mini chiclets because apparently um the I, I don't know exactly what happened to the company that made the mini chiclets, but I guess they went out of business. I don't know. So anyway, 
how did they know that I mentioned this? I, I must have done a search for mini chiclets in Google, and that's how I got the ad, right? So where is the ad? I'm just trying to see. Yeah. It's the Garrett J. Vergberg. <laughs> what? <laughs> Garrett J. Verberg Company. Garrett's Mini Mini Chickle Gum. <laughs> mini Mini Chickle. So it's like it's... It's meant to look exactly like this. <coughs> so somehow, yeah, I guess these guys paid Google to do an ad. Anyone searching for mini chiclets, br- bring them to our web page. Tiny pieces packed with big flavor. Don't let the size fool you. Every mini piece of crunchy chew- chewing gum is bursting with mega flavor. Treat your taste buds to these beloved candy classics available in fruit and sugar-free mint. Here's Garrett's Mini Mini Fruit with a medley of bright fruit fruit flavors in every pack. Each piece feels like a tropical vacation for your taste buds. Paradise is waiting for you with Garrett's Mini Mini Fruit Chickle Gum. Who are these people? Where'd they come from? It's wild, right? Where they have licorice and stuff. Yeah, I can understand, like, if you have a candy company that you'd want to recreate a product like this, but... Hmm. <coughs> About. How long have you been in business? Garrett J. Verberg Company or Corporation. Is it C.O. period? Is that company or corporation? Has been in business since 1979 and is based in Fenton, Michigan. Wow. I never heard of these guys. So anyway, they have uh, GarrettJVerberg.com. I, I I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's vegan though. So <laughs> I know I'm such a buzzkill with my vegan stuff, but still, it's gluten free and GMO free. <coughs> but I suppose it's not. Uh, they would say if it's vegan. Oh, are these the guys that make those blackjack beamins and clove, like those those gum gum those old gums returned? Okay, yeah, yeah. That gum you like is coming back in style. From Twin Peaks. Let me just see what happened with chiclets. Like what 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 when was the demise of chiclets? Chiclets gum. No, wait a minute. It's it still exists? This item is out of stock. No kidding. Wait. Ch- if it's from Adams, are they still producing it? I know. I think I went down this road last time too, right? Our checklist is discontinued. We are sad to announce that the manufacturer has discontinued chiclets and our stock is gone. That's from OldTimeCandy.com. Please consider chickle chews as a replacement. I guess, I guess they just weren't big sellers. I, I guess they must have gone out of business. So there's a different company, Chickle Chews. Oh, it's the same company. Okay. That whatever, Gerberg, Vergberg company. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I just don't know when. Chicklets is an American brand of candy-coated chewing gum manufactured by Mondelez International. Hmm. No, that's the former Nabisco, Mondelez. It was mentioned in the Saturday Evening Post in 2019. Wait. Whoa, back up a second. There's still a Saturday evening post. 
Is there? Did they did they bring that back? That was a big magazine back in the day. A lot of uh, Norman Rockwell covers. That as of 2016, Chicklets was discontinued by Mondelez in the United States. It has reappeared as of 2019, manufactured in Mexico. In 2020, the trademark trial and appeal board held that the Chicklets trademark had not been abandoned. To further confuse the issue, it was noted in an article on the Mashed website that Chicklets, identified as Adams Chicklets, were available in Walmart, Kmart, and Amazon in the U.S. What? It's very, very sketchy information on this whole Chicklets thing. So did they bring back the mini Chicklets or just the regular Chicklets? Or are they discontinued again? Or... Hey, hey, hey. Ooh, someone's selling... Was it reproduction? Hmm. Lebanese... There's, there's Lebanese... Czech gum, which is again uh, total, totally based on the mini chiclets. So even in Lebanon, they're they're looking for this, and there's retro chiclets earrings. It looks like, yeah. So like retro chiclets peppermint chewing gum earrings. Hmm. It's just some of these things. There's like no, there's no good information, you know. What is this? Zebra gum. Was that fruit stripe gum? This is how long my tolerance for people lasts. What? To their custom earrings with that, the fruit stripe zebra character. I don't even know if they still make that gum anymore. But it was gum that tasted great. You would start chewing it, and the and it. In turn, the flavor lasted about three seconds, and then it just felt like you're chewing cardboard. So someone here, this is how long my tolerance for people lasts. So someone has to know the backstory of the deficiencies of fruit stripe gum in order to understand these earrings. Very, very, uh, <laughs> very uh, complex. All right, whatever. So I must have done a search for it, I suppose. <coughs> That's how they got me with that ad. So as you may know, I uh, recently finished up the rules for this solitaire card game using standard playing cards uh, called Flea Devil Solitaire. I invented this. It took me 15 years to invent it. And I've been continuing to playtest it constantly. I actually went out to the garage and to grab some playing cards. I had a box of junk out there with a lot of playing cards in it. Because I do like playing with different decks, um, Flea Devil. And uh, just continuing to play so much to sort of get the information of, you know, are the rules final? And, and so far, so good. It seems great. I'm playing, uh, you know, I have here a new deck, I, a new old deck, uh, Trump Marina hotel casino playing cards that with a drill the hole through the middle because these are the, these are the cards they'd use in the casino for the card games like uh, blackjack and stuff so with the hole drilled through no one can cheat and have an ace up their sleeve or what have you um, and these are really good cards for flea devil now the thing about flea devil is i've been really playing with the 52 cards of a standard playing card deck plus the two jokers plus one more card right the jokers are zonkers, and so I've been. I found that three zonkers is actually the best way to go. The best balance, 
most decks of cards do have an additional um, two additional cards. So there's 56 cards in most modern day uh, decks of cards. I'm assuming it's because they have to, you know, how they have to set it up as a master sheet. The rows and columns, uh, 54 is not even, so they do 56. And they do sell the uncut sheets too, so we could see it that way. Anyway, um, so you could just use one of those cards as as the uh, as the 55th card. Um, but now that I'm expanding out into other decks of cards, I've been noticing, for example, this deck has exactly 55 cards, not 56. This set is from Jamaica, Jamaica or Jamaco. Yeah, the oh Jamaico. There's a little line over the A. Jamaico Card Company. Um, but these are really good, so I figured I would try to find some more from Jamaico. And so I found online, for some reason, there's a lot of these available. Uh, Chewy Zaps playing cards um, by Jamaico, and I, I bought this off eBay. So there's this candy called Chewy Zaps. Let me see. I, I have the, yeah, I, I got these the other day in the mail, and. Uh, so this is a candy I had never, I've never had this candy, Chewy Zaps. It's in this purple package. And Chewy Zaps, it says, bite-sized, uh, bite supercharged, tangy candy. And um, it kind of looks like it's from the 80s. Turns out it is actually from the 80s, Chewy Zaps. And I just love this, the illustration is, is of the package and a bunch of the actual candies outside there. And these are the backs of the cards, right? So... This deck, unfortunately, only has 54 cards. It only has the two jokers and nothing else. So I know in some cases people will not have that extra card. So I'm going to use this deck to... Um, and this is also like... the Yeah, it's, it, this is an older deck and it's not quite ha does not quite have the same um, finish a lot of the newer cards have. These cards are probably from the 80s. So this is a good experiment. Um... I'm going to see how, uh, you know, in theory, my scores should be higher if I only have two Zonkers as opposed to three. But this really got me wondering about Chewy Zaps. Like, what were they? What are they? So I started doing research, and uh, apparently this is, uh, these are long gone, but there's a lot of information about Chewy Zaps. Um, so on... Amazon, there's a product called Zingy Zaps from Oakleaf. See, more, more, more lost candy and gum. Yes. Uh, and someone asks the question, are these the Chewy Zaps that came in the purple package back around 96, 97? So they're, they're saying it's ni 90s. The answer, no, they are not. Zaps were much softer and a little rounded on the top and bottom. Came in that purple bag. I tried to find them a few years ago, and all I could find is that the company that makes them went out of business. These are exactly like Chewy Sprees, much harder than the Zap and flat on the top and bottom. Still good, but Zaps are better. So this is giving us some clues. I, of course, am very familiar with Spree and Chewy Spree, which I did used to get. Uh, those were a really good candy, but these were actually apparently much better than Chewy Sprees and more rounded on the top and bottom. Here's a review from 2018. Was hoping these were actually zaps, 
which are the chewy version. Now I'm stuck with a whole bunch of spree-type candy that I could have bought at any local store and not paid shipping. Very very bitter purchasers here. They thought they were getting chewy zaps. These are sprees, not zaps. People are very, and, and, and someone says it tastes like a very nasty spree. My personal opinion is they are gross, like a very nasty spree. Left a terrible aftertaste. I threw them away. So anyway, but this gives us some information on these uh, chewy zaps. Um, here is a site called bradkent.com. I guess he has the candy wrappers, and here's the chewy zaps wrapper, the same exact one depicted on the playing card deck. And let's see the oh the back of the package. This will be interesting. I didn't look at this yet. Do they have a back? Ooh, maybe they don't. Oh well. Anyway, here's some comments on it, uh, ranging from most of these comments are from 2007, and then there's one from 2012. From 2007, someone says here, uh, "Does anyone know where I can find this candy? I have been searching the web for months to find it. So if so, please email me." That was Martin Amber says. If I could find these, I'd do cartwheels. I'd have to learn how first, but for these, I'd be willing. They used to have zaps in the machine at my high school, and I'd never seen them anywhere else. I'm just glad to see that I remember them right. Jennifer from Oregon says, so the first one was Martin from Florida, Amber from Dallas, Texas. This is Jennifer from Oregon. I've done a fair amount of searching, too, over the years. Like Amber, I bought them from my high school vending machine, uh, Sahuaro in Tucson, Arizona. I have learned they were made by the Wonka Company, but have never found them. So I think they are no longer made. There are candies in some gumball machines that are very similar, though. And Steve from Richardson, Texas says, Amber, where's at specifically in Dallas? I remember these in my junior high in Richardson. Funny how we recall these things from our youth. Well, I guess that all depends on how long it's been since you last had these. For me, it's been about 16 or 17 years. So... Everyone's talking about how they weren't at stores, but they were just in high school vending machines, which is very interesting. And a comment from 2012, Misty from uh, Alaska, right? AK? It's Alaska, right? Is that Arkansas? No. AK, yeah. Um, And here's the comment. I, too, have been searching for years for these. In my high school years, I would walk to a little store and buy zaps on my lunch break. They are chewy, tart, and delicious. I cannot find them anywhere. So, yeah, this is very, very sad. But at least I got the playing cards. There's a bunch of decks online. They must have made a run of these cards to, for some sort of promotion. Here we have interesting piece of information here. Uh, for sale on eBay, 1987 Chewy Zaps fundraising candy box empty. Collectible decor. So this is just a cardboard box, right? Kind of a beat-up cardboard box, but it says 60-count fundraising boxes, Chewy Zaps Candy from Sunmark, Inc., St. Louis, Missouri. So we know the company that made them is called Sunmark, right? Uh, I don't know who's going to buy this for 40 bucks. I mean, it's, 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 just, it's a cardboard box. But, yes, if you're collecting anything related to Chewy Zaps, this would be a, a wonderful item. But, yeah. It's kind of a strange collectible. So there's also a, um, on Flickr, there is a kind of a photocopy, Sonny's Fun Candies. That must be, there's a, there's a living character of a son. 
That must have been Sunmark's uh, mascot. Uh, was it 1986 May-June promotion, right? And they showed giant tarts, so they're like sweet tarts. The Lickamade Fun Dip, chewy sweet tarts. I used to love those, the chewy sweet tarts. They, they were not vegan. They contained egg, egg albumin. Tangy taffy sweet spree and sweet tarts, and then there's Zaps. They list Zaps with the same logo, but it's a non-chewy variety. So this is saying 86. Here is fundraising line. Yes, this is where where, did, where is this from? The fundraising line from Sunmark Special Markets. Chewy Zaps. But this is a box, not not a, uh, a, a not like a, a packet, like that plastic packet. This, there's an actual box of Chewy Zaps that's different. Everlasting Gobstopper, Jawbreaker Midgets, Sweet Tarts, Nerds, Nerds, Cherry Nerds, and Grape Nerds. The same company made Nerds, Gummy Nerds, those Turtles, their Chocolates and Spree, Light and Lively Candy. So this, where is this from? This is another reference to Chewy Zaps. I'm... I'm remembering.com. It just without comment. So it sounds like maybe like schools would get these candies for fundraising and then put them in the the vending machines in the schools, something like that. Hmm. <laughs> Spree candy. Yeah. Is there any Yeah, so they're definitely related to Spree, but they're not Spree. And finally, we have the Wikipedia entry for Sunmark Corporation. And this is where I think we can get a lot of information. What happened to the company? Sunmark Corporation, formerly Sunline Inc., was a candy confectionery company based in St. Louis, Missouri. The company was founded by Menlo F. Smith in 1952. Now, wait a minute. The guy's name is Menlo? Like Menlo Park Mall? (laughs) Menlo Smith? What a name. And there's actually a page for Menlo Smith? Let me see. How do, how do you get to be named Menlo? He's a prominent St. Louis businessman and a leader in the Mormon church. Wow. Why is it whenever you hear about someone that sounds kind of cool, then they're into some sort of weird religion that turns you off to them? The company was founded by Menlo F. Smith in 1952 <coughs> as an offshoot of the company owned by his father, Joseph Fish Smith. They invented many candy brands, some of which are still produced today, such as Pixie Sticks, Sweet Tarts, Spree, and Lickamade, now known as Fun Dip. <laughs> That's that candy that had the little, like the, the colored sugar and, and the, those, those little white rods that almost, were almost flavorless that you would lick and then dip into it. It was great. I think they still have them. Originally called Sunline Incorporated, it changed its name to Sunmark Inc., it subsequently acquired Breaker Connections in 1975, makers of the Wonka Bar, Scrunch Bar, and Oompas. See, there was always this weird thing where after the Willy Wonka movie came out, they started making candy based on it. It was always kind of creepy because, like, Willy Wonka's mo- was really – the whole thing was really creepy. So do you really want to eat candy that's related to that super creepy, like, movie? I love the movie, but it's very creepy though, right? Uh, so they changed – the name of Breaker Connections to Willy Wonka Brands in 1980. Additionally, the Sunmark companies became a parent company to the brands Sunline Brands, 
Sunfield Foods, and David and & Sons, as well as other subsidiaries that supported its manufacturing and distribution functions. In 1983, Sunmark introduced Nerds. That was a major candy back then. In 1986, it was acquired by Roundtree Macintosh Confectionery of the UK, which was purchased by Nestle in 1988. In 1993, Nestle renamed the company the Willy Wonka Candy Company. In 1999, they closed the corporate offices that had been in St. Louis. In mid-2006, many of Sunmark Company's last candy production plants, then owned by Nestle, were shut down due to an overly competitive market. So, yeah, that's a lot, there's a lot going on there, which, you know, and I, I know I've questioned this, but I, I understand, like, if you have a company, what, what exactly, why do, you, why do these people always have to sell their company to another company? Why can't they just stay a company? Why couldn't... Sunmark Corporation, like, stay its own company. Why did it have to sell to another company that was then sold to another company that was then sold to another company? Right? I mean, it, it, it just, like, it must seem you should be able to eke out some kind of profit if you have a known candy. They made nerds, for God's sakes. That's a very popular candy back in the 80s. And I know there's an answer. I know there's an answer. Yes. Hang on to your ego. Yes, the previous version of the song. Beach Boy song. Anyway, as I understand it, in this economic uh, narrative we live in, uh, companies have to uh, they have to they have to have lines of credit with banks in order to f- do anything. Right? If you want to expand or build a new factory or create a new product and you don't have enough money, you have to borrow the money from a bank, right? So you, so you, you, I guess the idea is you want to keep growing, right? And this is the thing where I understand like, um, and I, I will admit my understanding of this is not perfect, but the idea that uh, a publicly held corporation, right, they, they, their mission is to keep growing year after year. They need to keep getting bigger and bigger, which seems like almost impossible that Every company on earth that's a corporation that has, pub- that has shareholders, all of them need to get bigger and bigger, right? And I mean part of it is, yes, the pop- world population is increasing and we- it just hit 8 billion just uh, last month, right? The estimate of the world population is over 8 billion. But now there's all these stories saying that the world population will now start going down after a while. Um, so the idea – like I would think a company can just – Right. Let's say they their expenses every year are a million dollars, and then the amount of money they make from their various enterprises is one point four million dollars. That's four hundred thousand dollars profit every year. Wow, that's after everyone even got paid. So next year, can we just also uh, make four hundred thousand dollars? And not not get bigger, but just continue. Like, okay, we'll we'll do the same thing next year. Well, we'll our our it costs us a million dollars in our payroll and our insurance and every other kind of cost. And then we're going to make one point four million dollars. So we'll make next year we'll make another four hundred thousand dollars. And then whoever owns the company, whether it's privately held or publicly held, you get like some money. So 
why can't they just keep doing that? Like, like just keep doing that year after year as opposed to having to make more profits every year. You know what I mean? And I know there's an answer to that. I just don't know. It just sort of seems like why can't a company that's relatively successful in their little niche making like little candies, why can't they just do that? Why is it that they're constantly like – I'm assuming they run into a case where they've been trying to expand and extended their credit line and things and they, they ran into some sort of a, down, um, a slight – you know, issue, and that, and they, and now they can't they can't pay back their their loans, so they have to be sold to another company. There's just something weird going on with this whole system. <laughs> kind of obviously, yes, Captain Obvious, yes. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It just it just seems like a shame. So much cool stuff that has existed, the company behind it just like collapses almost immediately. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole other topic, but. <coughs> And here's a shocking article referenced in uh, this article about Sunmark Corporation. Apparently, Fun Dip, Pixie Sticks, Kool-Aid, and Sweet Tarts are all the same thing? What? It's from Food Beast? Oh, wow, the article's still up from 2016. This is from 2014. An article by Charisma Matarang. Let's see. Around the late 1930s, a sour powdered candy named Frutola was created to contend with a similar drink mix named Kool-Aid. However, the developer soon realized that kids preferred pouring the mix directly into their mouths. He repackaged the product and added a spoon and calling it Lickamade. The edible candy sticks and colored sugar would later be rebranded in the 1970s as Fun Dip. I, abs- I absolutely remember Lick-A-Made lasted. I think Lick-A-Made as a phrase lasted at least into the 80s. During this time, the company Sunline Inc. also released Pixie Sticks, colorful straw-shaped wrappers filled with powdered sugar. However, the non-resealable tubes led to regular complaints from parents claiming the loose candy powder was unnecessarily messy. So by the 1960s, a solid version based on the same recipe used to make Pixie Sticks was born and named Sweet Tarts. Wow, it's all the same thing. Wow, what an article! What 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 writing by Charisma Matarang? Yes, but it's it's no, it's a good it's a good story. It's a good idea. I remember um, me and Mad Mike in college when we were at our like our phase of being like <coughs> um, sort of the most like we, we had sort of we were in college in the mid '80s and for some reason we sort of saw ourselves as sort of like characters in like an 80s teen comedy movie. So we would always try to do all these hijinks, which really, you know, didn't go over very well in the real world as they would have if we were living in a movie. But I remember we had a ton of pixie sticks and we were in a class together. I think it was New Religious Movements in America. And um, we were like just, (laughs) we were like putting them down like lines, almost like cocaine (laughs) on pieces of paper. And then suck, <coughs> sucking them up through the tubes as if we were doing like coke in the back of the room. <laughs> the hell was wrong with us? But yes, we were we were fairly obsessed with pixie sticks, as as many as most people do get obsessed with pixie sticks at some point in their lives. In other news, I finished watching Wild Palms, the uh, limited uh, TV series, the miniseries from 1993 that uh, came to mind when I, when I watched uh, the original Prisoner 
1967, and then the remake from 2009, which was awful. But it reminded me of Wild Palms. And I remember the marketing and the push for Wild Palms back then in 93. I had been a big fan of Twin Peaks in 90 and 91. And people were, were comparing Wild Palms to sort of something like Twin Peaks, like sort of event television, weird artistic television. And uh, I do not recall if I watched it at all. Um, back then, I would have either well, I had to watch it live or I had a VHS, you know, VCR that I could have taped it on. But I don't have any memory of watching it. And since I rewatched it, I don't remember any of the specifics. And um, I, don't, I don't remember seeing any, any cassette, uh, video cassette tapes. As I went through all my old video cassettes as part of my uh, tape land video project, I don't remember seeing Wild Palms on any of them. So maybe I didn't watch it at all. It's something I always wanted to, um, you know, to watch. And, I, and there's a trailer that I played quite a bit on the other side. Let me see if we can find that trailer. All right, I found it. And, and of course, it takes place in Los Angeles in the future year, 2007, <coughs> which sounds very ridiculous from our perspective here in 2022. <coughs> Los Angeles, 2007. Harry Wyckoff is an ambitious attorney. Everybody knows you're making partner. Who has it all. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me, Grace. But Harry wants more. How would you like to work for me at five times your old salary? Reed is about to trap him. You're with us now. Between good and evil. We're talking two groups. Political enemies. The defenders of freedom. One day you're going to find out that our country no longer belongs to us. And their oppressors. Senator Tony Kreutzer. A corrupt elite. We are the cardinals of this cathedral. Beaming virtual reality into homes around the world. He is our Alexander, and he will conquer the countries of our imaginations one by one. And we will dream him into infinity. And using it to seize power through intimidation. This better be good. I'm going to do some cutting now, okay? Seduction. Pull him in. Show him. For Harry Wyckoff, the nightmare has just begun. I can do things you can't imagine. Who's dangerous? So, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, I don't think I ever watched it before. I'm amazed I never saw it before. It's just on YouTube. It's just blatantly, the, all five episodes are on YouTube. 
There's no ads or anything on them. You just watch it. I think there's no ads. Maybe there's some ads, but not a lot of ads. Um, yeah, and I thought it was actually pretty good. I really did like it. Um, it definitely uh, has this vibe. As I think I started talking about last time, that real, you know, for me especially, 1993 represents sort of the crux of the this energy that sort of rose and then fell in the 90s. Um, of course, that quote from Dennis Hopper from the movie Flashback, I think where he's playing Abby Hoffman. When we're done with the 80s, the 90s are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. And I remember kind of sharing in that uh, estimate of the 90s were going to be this great, cool, groovy decade. And they were. There was something going on in the early 90s that crested around 93. And then by like 95 was definitely on the wane, that particular kind of energy. It was right before the World Wide Web really took off in 94 and 95. Right before that, there's this crest of energy. And I talked about it last time, but uh, this show kind of really embodies that. And I really did enjoy their vision of 2007, um, you know, with the d- different ways people were, you know, the different kind of clothing and the designs and, and the use of, like, old cars and stuff. Um, the show itself, I really do like, I do think Jim Belushi is great as the lead role as Harry Wyckoff. And the cast is really uh, quite amazing. Um, with uh, Dana Delaney and B.B. Newworth, Angie Dickinson, Kim Cattrall, Robert Loggia, and uh, what's his name? That that character actor guy that I always forget his name, but uh, you you know him if you saw him. Oh, David Warner is in it, of course. Uh, Ernie Hudson, David Warner from Tron, Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters, and a bunch of people and what's his name Brad Dorif yeah he's a guy he was he's been in so many things Brad Dorif let's see oh he was he was he played the, the, the in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that was a big role of his please nurse ratchet don't tell my mother right that was the one he's, he was in Blue Velvet he's been in so much stuff right he played Raymond Raymond Dennis Hopper was in that. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, and the story is very – it does get kind of hard to follow, but basically there's the uh, the fathers headed by this Senator Kreutzmann, played by Robert Loggia, who's uh, he was also the head of the Church of Synthiotics, which is obviously based on, on Scientology. And then the friends are kind of like the libertarian freedom fighters that are kind of um, – fighting them behind the scenes as as America's becoming more like a fascistic and uh and you know um totalitarian but i have to say that the fact that the two groups one is called fathers one is called friends the two words are so similar they both start with f it does cause some kind of a lot of confusion um of course also as i mentioned charles rocket is in it and he he's great as this uh this comedian named Ch- stitch walken and he's one of, he's one of the friends I told you about the tragic story of Charles Rocket, how he said fuck on Saturday Night Live and got fired. And then he had a few more roles, and he died young of cancer. Very sad. Was it cancer? I think it was, yeah. Anyway, um, it's definitely, the show is definitely not perfect. It definitely, um, 
it gets very violent and there's a lot of people dying and a lot of torture and a lot of stuff like that that gets kind of negative and it feels very nihilistic like everyone's just killing everyone else so many of the characters are dead at it by the end pointlessly it seems but at the same time one of the reviews said just view it as like an opera the visuals the composition of the scenes and the tone of it um, definitely are, are a part of that to definitely add up to something so in the end I really liked it but it's it's something that it definitely fell short of what you could sort of see in it uh, a, a brilliant version that could have been that this was really quite off the mark from that but even though as it is it's very good and it definitely touches on so many themes especially the disturbing themes of you know child abuse child abductions things like that and this again had a creepy child a, a creepy young boy actor who just acts weird and creepy and just stands there and stares just like Recently, that show, 1889, and then that other show was the other show with the creepy kid. Um, the one I just watched. Uh, whatever. It's, I can't remember the name of all these shows. But the one where the woman has these visions and whatever. Anyway, why is that a theme, a running theme of it's like this little boy just standing there staring at you with a blank expression and all of these things. Gee, it almost sounds like something they're introducing to uh, have some sort of morphic resonance. Maybe not. Maybe so. Maybe so and maybe not. Anyway, here's the backstory of the production from the Wikipedia page. Oliver Stone had originally planned to film Bruce Wagner's novel Force Majeure, but then decided to film Wagner's comic strip Wild Palms, published in Details Magazine instead. It was so syncretic. What is this vocabulary word? Syncretic? What is that? What is syncretic? Syncretic. Syncretism is the practice of combining different beliefs in various schools of thought. Hmm. Interesting. See, now I know. It was such a fractured view of the world. Everything and anything could happen. Maybe your wife isn't your wife. Maybe your kids aren't your kids. It really appealed to me. Wagner referred to his creation as a sort of surreal diary, a tone poem, set in an Orwellian Los Angeles. ABC agreed to finance the project on a budget of $11 million, but... Remembering the eventual decline of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, insisted that the series had a complete story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's <laughs> a pretty good idea, actually. The, mis- the mystery box school of school of filmmaking and TV making forced them to have a beginning, a middle, and end. Actor James Belushi compared the series, among others, to the British TV serial The Prisoner. See, there's a connection, and stated, "It's very tough, very challenging. A lot of viewers probably won't dig it." Dana Delaney suggested that viewers should let it wash over you, enjoy each scene, and by the end it'll make sense. Robert Loggia compared it to the Elizabethan play The Duchess of Malfi, the ancient Greek tragedy Medea. These people are all, all these actors are very smart. They have all these things. They, they know about ancient literature. <laughs> or was it their publicist? ABC, I don't know, ABC, bound to make sure that viewers won't lose attention, had a supplemental book, The Wild Palms Reader, published and offered a telephone hotline with the show's initial run. What, if you had questions, you could call the hotline and ask, ask questions about what's going on in Wild Palms? It's wild. Wild Palms is wild. These measures notwithstanding, Stone considered the atmosphere to be more important than the storyline. William Gibson later stated that while the miniseries fell drastically short of the serial, it did produce one admir- admirably peculiar literary artifact, the Wild Palms Reader, to which he contributed. Both Stone and Gibson called Wagner the creative force behind the series. So, 
Yeah, I don't have this, the Wild Palms Reader, but apparently it's a strange literary artifact. All right, let me let me search for that as well. Do I have to buy this now too? It's just so it's just wild that I've I've kind of like uh, I've been meaning to uh, check this out like for such a long time, and I finally watched it, you know. And there's another one that's in the same universe that. Hold, on, I'll, I'll we'll get to that. <laughs> I just started delving into the world of Max Headroom in a, in a big way, so we'll get to that. Anyway, let's continue with this. The uh, did I read did I read the reviews of this show last time? New York Times critic John O'Connor called Wild Palms a truly wild six-hour miniseries resembling nothing so much as an acid freak's fantasy drenched in paranoia and more pop culture illusions than a Dennis Miller monologue. He described it as rich and insinuating as a good theatrical film, albeit harder, harder to follow, and concluded, you wanted something different? Here it is. And Wild Palms also happens to be terrific. Ken Tucker in Entertainment Weekly stated that in its length, scope, and sweeping visual tableau and over-the-top passion, Wild Palms is more like an opera than a TV show. Comparing it to David Lynch's Twin Peaks, he decided that unlike Peaks, which started out brilliantly lucid and then rambled into, into incoherence, Palms sustains its length and adds layers of complexity to its characters. It also has something crucial that Peaks did not, a sense of humor about itself. Wow, I completely disagree with that sentiment from Ken Tucker. I absolutely think Twin Peaks had a sense of humor about itself. And this, and this uh, Wild Palms does as well. Twin Peaks didn't have a sense of humor about itself? What the hell's this guy watching? What's wrong with Ken Tucker? That's ridiculous. Mary Harron of the British Independent suggested that viewers forget about the message and what the rhino means. Wild Palm should be watched like opera for its gorgeous images, its emotional set pieces, and its high style. Readers of the British Trade Weekly broadcast were much more negative, calling it one of the worst television shows ever exported by the U.S. to the U.K., it placed fourth on their list, exceeded only by Baywatch, The Anna Nicole Show, and The Dukes of Hazard. Wow. They're saying it's worse than The Dukes of Hazzard. That That's a bit extreme. I, I really don't. I, I, considering the, the nature of Wild Palms, its intent, it's not. It, 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 had a very, um, at, it had a very high mark it was trying to hit, and it, and it got about you know more than halfway there, in my opinion. So it's not bad. TV Guide also blasted it, offering the interpretation that Oliver Stone was condemning television while covertly lauding cinematic films. All these angry reviewers. All right, The Wild Palms Reader. Let's see how much this is going to set me back at this point, okay? How many years later is this now? 30 years later? Pretty much, right? 93 to 03, 13, to, we'll be in 2023 in a few weeks. Right? Almost 30 years ago, this thing. Wow. All right. Yeah. They only have one available for $15? Only, only th this one says one. This one says 13 left in stock. Are they used? Are they new? Or, like, what's going on here? The Wild Palms Reader. Released as the ambitious companion book to the Oliver Stone-produced ABC miniseries, The Wild Palms Reader has now attained legendary status in its own right as a landmark work 
of subversive speculative fiction. Wild Palms is at once epistemological, what is the word? Epistemological whodunit. Epistemological whodunit. All right, let's check out that word. Epistemological. See, there's a lot of vocabulary words when it comes to uh, Wild Palms. A lot of very smart people. Epistemological. How did you say that? Cool. Say again? Epistemological. Epistema. Uh, that's what I said. No, I didn't say that. Epistemological? Epistemological. 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 Relating to the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope, and the distinction between justified belief and opinion. Oh, so I, I do a lot of that myself. Epistemological. I do a lot of epistemological work myself, I suppose. Um, Com, uh, epistemological whodunit, comic book opera, and the hyper-real satire, and a hyper-real satire of contemporary culture, from cyber kitsch and Japanophilia slash phobia to most hallowed ideas of family and mortality. The Wild Palms miniseries detailed the rise of Synthiotics, a dynastic techno cult which co-ops the public's dreams through 3D TV and psychotropic drugs in an effort to induce mass psychosis. The Wild Palms Reader unfolds the saga of Tony Kreutzer, the brilliant and twisted guru of Synthiotics, and his sister Josie, Grand Dame of his mystical fascist media empire. And I think in the show they called it techno-shamanism. Oh, look, there's some, uh, <clears throat> there's some uh, reviews of this book. Here you go. A classic example of a cur curate's egg. Much like the television production of Whence It Came. These people are very smart. A curate's, a curate's egg. <laughs> There's a Lynchian impenetrability of Wild Palms, but if it appeals, that's part of its appeal. The book is neither a behind-the-scenes nor an expanded universe production, but if you like Wild Palms, then this is one of those irreplaceable little additives to the total experience. Uh-oh, this person didn't like it in 2015. I loved the miniseries, but I wasn't expecting a comic book-style book. Uh-oh. Here's another review from 2014. Confusingly good. More confusing than the series, and I like it. Most enjoyable when you are almost sleeping and don't understand a thing. I recommend. And from 2016, a curiosity for fans of the series. All right. Let me, let me grab this. All right. Buy it now. Buy now. Yes. What? $22? What the hell? What kind of shipping charge are they putting on this crap? Oh, tax and shipping? Holy crap. All right, I'll get in a few days. All right, I, I, I need it. And plus, the it looks like they're using one of those uh, emigre fonts on the cover. I'm going to get it Friday. Today's Tuesday. I think I, I think I can wait. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's that font. No, it's not, but it's something similar. Yeah, yeah. How many pages is it? It has comics in it, comic book stuff. Does it have all of the... Because remember they were talking about Details Magazine had a whole whole thing of it. Remember Details Magazine? That was a big magazine at some point. All right, so as I mentioned, uh, I've embarked on another bit of pop culture research. Uh, this time I want to really delve into the world of Max Headroom. So... As we can recall, Max Headroom, starting in 1985, was, uh, was seemingly everywhere. The idea was it was a computer-generated character 
that you would only ever see on a video screen. And it looked like a computer-generated guy with kind of like blonde hair and these crazy backgrounds, right? And you see just you just sort of see his uh, his head and then his uh, his shoulders look like he's wearing a suit made out of plastic. So the gimmick was that this this was uh, the first like computer-generated like television personality, right? But of course, the reality was it was Max Headroom was played by an actor named Matt uh, Matt, uh, Matt Frewer, and he had to uh, get huge amounts of like makeup and prosthetics to to have that look and then they would f- i'm assuming film him with a video camera um and apply all of these uh, video effects voice effects like he was sort of stuttering and and so they must have had video effects processors audio effects processors because he could appear live like for example so when he came on the scene he was just everywhere he was on the letterman he was on david letterman he was the spokesman for Coca-Cola, did a ton of ads for New Coke. That's actually the very famous failed New Coke product. He, w- he was the spokesman for it. Um, of course, parodies of him appeared in, or references to him appeared in Back to the Future Part 2, right, a few years after that, <coughs> in Cafe 80s, right? And uh, he also was in a song that I absolutely loved called Paranoia by The Art of Noise. And he, there's a bunch of different remixes of Max Headroom sort of starring in the song. It's like, is it me or is the band getting bigger? On Mike, the lovely, lovely share. You okay, Mike? And he, and he had this you know, sort of, uh, you know, this sort of sense, this style of humor, play on words and always cracking jokes. And I just watched his first appearance on Letterman, and it was very, very good. Um, of course, someone hacked into a TV signal during Doctor Who with sort of a pretending to be Max Headroom. So what the hell? Where did this start? I always knew there was like a TV show about Max Headroom. And it's very hard to figure out because there's multiple TV shows that happened, right? So (coughs) it's a big field of study, Max Headroom. I think there could be a college course, Max Headroom Studies, you know? So anyway... The TV history, and this is where I, this is where I'm at. I started watching a couple of these. Um, Max Headroom debuted in the British-made cyberpunk TV movie Max Headroom: Twenty Minutes into the Future, which was broadcast on April fourth, nineteen eighty-five. It consists of material originally planned to be broken into five-minute backstory segments for the Max Headroom show, later expanded to one hour. Set in a near-future world. It focuses on Edison Carter, played by Matt Frewer, a crusading and witty journalist who openly challenges the corporations that rule the world. So kind of similar to Wild Palms in some ways, you know. Including his own employer, Station 23. Max Headroom is a secondary character, an AI created from Carter's basic brain patterns and memory fragments. As Carter exposes corruption in Station 23, Max rises as a host on independent public access television. In the movie, Max and Edison Carter never meet. Right? So this was... So they were working on this other show called the Max Headroom Show. So I guess they were going to show these as little segments. Because then there's the Max Headroom Show that premiered two days later. April 6, 1985. See, Max Headroom Studies is a very difficult course, okay? You know, it's a lot to take in from Max Headroom Studies. Um... It, the Max Headroom show now 
features music videos with Max Headroom as the video jockey, or VJ. Early episodes unusually feature no introductory title sequence or end credits, beginning and ending with a cold open of static as if Max Headroom is hijacking the broadcast, right? Um, Channel 4 advertised Max as the first computer-generated TV presenter, and Matt Frewer was initially under contract to withhold his identity in the role. Many believed Max was a computer-animated puppet manipulated and voiced by an actor. For this reason, the series pilot won the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award for Graphics in 1986, though the show had no computer-generated graphics beyond Max's simple background lines. The show was an immediate hit in the UK, doubling Channel 4's viewing figures for its time slot within one month. In its second year, the program broadened the original concept to include a live studio audience and celebrity interviews. Frewer did not appear in person before the audience or share the stage with guests. Instead, he filmed in another room as Max Headroom and appeared before the audience and guests on television screens, vi- television screens via a live feed, maintaining the illusion of an AI living broadcast living in broadcast signals and computer systems. The second and third years of the show were also broadcast on the U.S. cable channel Cinemax. A Christmas special was written by George R.R. Martin, later famous for his book series A Song of Ice and Fire, the basis for Game of Thrones. Channel 4 ended the Max Headroom show after its third year. Cinemax then produced six more episodes for U.S. audiences in 1987, rebranded as the original Talking Max Headroom show. So that's a whole thing where it's like playing music videos and doing interviews and stuff. And I tried finding any of this stuff. This stuff is real hard to find, okay? I found like a little bit of this, of one on uh, the Internet Archive. I, it doesn't even say like what episode it is or anything. This is, this is a tough one to find. <laughs> Channel 4 in Britain. This 19, whatever the year this was. And now on four. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do, Harry. <laughs> Harry, like Harry Wyckoff from Wild Palms? <laughs> oh, just chatting away to Harry back there. As a matter of fact, you might be interested in this too. Most people only eat revolting things to break a record. This lot did it to make a record. Rats on a budget. Eat and serve. So it's just a music video. I think it's the waitresses, maybe? They don't identify what the group is. But then there doesn't seem to be any more Max till the very end. Let's see. Anything? Maybe not. Maybe that was it. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Yeah. I think that was it. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Only a very little bit of Max Headroom. So this is not the end of the story, though. This is just the beginning. So then ABC created Max Headroom, the TV series, right? American TV station ABC acquired the rights to create an ongoing series titled Max Headroom. Rather than a music program, this is a prime-time dramatic series based on the story and concepts of the original TV movie Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future. By this time, it was known to the general public that Max was not a computer-generated character or puppet, but rather actor Matt Frewer in prosthetics. So press for the show openly spoke of him as the lead cast member in both roles of Max Headroom and Edison Carter. Amanda Pays, 
reprised her role from the original film. The pilot is largely based on the original movie. The hacker who creates Max Headroom is innocent and manipulated rather than overtly villainous and callous. Max's origin is slightly different. Yeah, yeah, well, let's continue with this. I haven't gotten to this part. This is spoilers. Max's origin is slightly different as he more strongly shares Carter's drive to expose corruption rather than only comment on it. In the pilot, Max and Carter meet, leading them to work as allies for the rest of the series. It regularly parodies and criticizes media corporations and topical news events. Max Headroom was broadcast for two short seasons from 87 to 88. There's 14 episodes. One was never uh, broadcast, but I was able to obtain them. Producer, producer Peter Wagg attempted to sell a movie concept called Max Headroom for President, but it was not picked up. Shout Factory released Max Headroom, the complete series, on DVD in the United States and Canada on August 10, 2010. And here, a planned reboot on July 29, 2022, AMC announced a series reboot with Matt Frewer as Max. So it's coming back? That was just a few months ago. Hmm. Let's see if we can find this link. That's in the works at AMC. And a- AMC is the one that made the uh, the Prisoner reboot, which was awful. Wow, look at this. Just from a few months ago. 1980s pop culture mainstay is plotting a comeback. AMC is developing a Max Headroom drama series reboot with Matt Frewer set to reprise his role. Wow. I wonder if this is actually going to happen. See, so anyway, I want to get back to this, this whole, the stuff here. So, right, I don't think I ever saw any of these shows. I don't remember watching these shows on TV, right? Anyway, they also list the television hijack, which is a separate thing. Um, so, really, the Max Headroom show that ran in Britain and then in the U.S. on Cinemax... This is something that it seems to be f- relatively unavailable. So I'm going to have to dig, dig in and see if there's any way to find this. I started watching the ABC series, but then I realized I probably should be watching 20 minutes into the future to start with. So I saw the very beginning of the TV series, right? And then the original TV movie is exactly the same, but much lower production values. It's really interesting. Uh, this one, 20 minutes into the future, is just on, is just on YouTube. It has almost kind of a similar vibe to, uh, to to Wild Palms, which obviously Wild Palms is many years later. It's running around the, the building of Network 23. Kind of reminds me of my... I'm trying to do that 1923 music project. I, Network 23 would have been a good name for it too, but it's already been used here. But yeah, there's all these like computer graphics on these surveillance systems that are kind of interesting. Edison, there's somebody else in the system. Ooh, it's the, the young hacker guy in a bathtub. Anyway, I'm going to have to keep watching this at some point and continue my research into Max Headroom. And also, as I said, I was watching the um, <clears throat> the Letterman appearances, and I guess eventually we'll get to Larry Bud Headroom. <coughs> Larry Bud Melman. <coughs> Here it is, actually. Barcia, folks, please say hello to Larry Bud Headroom. <laughs> you ready? I just take this right off. The TV set with Larry Bud Melman. There he is. There he is. Did you bring it to me here? But by the way, 
My skull really hurts. I may pass out at any minute. Okay. All right, hold on there, uh, Larry. First, let me tell you a few facts here about our own Larry Bud headroom. <laughs> number, <laughs> number one, Mr. Mr. Bud Headroom. So, Max Headroom first appeared on Letterman on July 17th, 1986. And so this is just a, a, a few months later, September 15th, 86. Uh, Larry, uh, Larry Bud Headroom is on. Headroom's hair is a synthetic fiber made by DuPont. <coughs> it may serve as a flotation device in the unlikely event of a water landing. Number two, generating Mr. Bud Headroom requires the simultaneous interface of all mainframe computers on the East Coast. Therefore, all air traffic will be on visual flight rules for the duration of tonight's segment. And finally, Mr. Bud Headroom is not in any way related to other popular computer-generated television personalities. Any similarity is strictly coincidental. Larry, take it away. Hey, 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 hello! <laughs> I'm everybody, buddy! I'm here to answer your questions about personal matters, financial matters, and affairs of the heart. So that right there is, I, I know I covered this. Um, uh, this th That's a reference to uh, radio personality Bernard Meltzer, who I used to listen to. He, he was like an advice guy on the radio. And uh, he went on the Letterman show and then really... Um, started like suing Letterman. There was, I, I forget the details, but it was this big scandal. And then Larry Bud Melman used to like do, do like a, I think it's because Larry Bud Melman did a character of Bernard Meltzer. Now they're referencing it here too. All these things that I know you have to know Bernard Meltzer, Larry Bud Melman, Letterman, all these things that are so familiar to me, but I know not everyone's familiar with it. Let's get right to the first one, please. Okay. I've only got enough air. For about five minutes. Minute, okay, minute. fine. <laughs> who, who has the uh, first question for uh, Mr. Headroom tonight? What is your name, sir? Adam Langus. Adam, where are you from? Plainview, Long Island. What do you do for a living in Plainview? I'm a manager at haagen -Dazs. A manager at haagen -Dazs. Right. <laughs> and he's kind of overweight, so. I, I think that speaks for itself. Now... Uh, what is your question for uh, Larry Bud Headroom? I want to know where I can go to get $20,000 so I can open up my own business. Where can he go to get this kind of money, Larry? Well, I'll tell you, pal. You haven't got a prayer. You look to me like a banker's nightmare. I don't even think they'd let you deposit money if you had any. Any, any. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. Larry Bud Headroom, nice. Can you imagine turning on the TV and seeing something like this? It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it was it was just a complete, just what an absolutely incredible TV show. Um, obviously, we can watch a lot of Letterman uh, now, but in the mid-'80s, there was nothing else like it. It was a true revolution in television. There's nothing like it now, either. But that's all another topic, Letterman. <laughs> That's an endless. That's an endless research. That's that's a constant life research, watching old Letterman episodes. Remember, there was that one guy that has a, a collect. He's collected every single episode of Letterman ever ever made. He has it all like on DVD, and he has a. As, this was a couple years ago, but he had a, his own YouTube channel and would post stuff. He's the only one that has a complete collection. I, I think I don't even think the network has a complete collection anymore. Though obviously, as the years ground on, I don't know if Letterman stuff like when it got into the '90s and stuff in the 2000s was as good as this, but you know what I'm saying. 
So anyway, I'm going to continue my Max Headroom research, and uh, this is a, this is a deep topic, and it does it does seem like the Max Headroom show is uh, unavailable. <laughs> Let's see. I'm trying to see if they if there's any home video. No, I don't. Th I don't think this. Uh, I don't think it was ever released on home video. Hmm. The Max Headroom Chronicles at maxheadroom.com. You found the home of F F everything Max Headroom. Even after 35 years, he's still 20 minutes into the future. This site aims to be the most complete word on everything related to Max Headroom. 80s icon, TV host and star, satirist, and meme. If it's Max, you'll find it here. Hmm. <clears throat> Let's see. The Max Headroom Show? Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't even seem that they have that let me see. I I don't even know if they were able to get even any descriptions of these shows. No copy of this episode is known to be publicly available, and no clips of season one material can be specifically attributed to this episode. Wow. So this stuff is really like this is like almost like lost media. Let me go to the lost media wiki here and see if there's any Is it lost media? Is this show like lost? Lost to history? Let me see. That's very sad. That will impact my research into this topic. Lost Media Wiki. Okay, Max. Max Headroom. <laughs> Max Headroom. They have all the. They have all that hijacking stuff, which is not which is not really I mean it's related to Max Headroom, but it's not wasn't created by the Max Headroom people. Hmm. I don't know. So maybe someone has it somewhere. I I, I don't know. This is uh right. Oh let's see who who were guests on the show. Sting, Simon Laban, and Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran, okay. They were promoting uh, their band Arcadia. Roger Daltrey, Boy George, Michael Caine, Vidal Sassoon, Oliver Reed, Tracy Ullman, Rutger Hauer, David Byrne, Howie Mandel, Jack Lemmon, Jackson Brown, and Jackie Collins. Wow. Wow, look, a little connection to one of my other major research uh, pieces, um, Anthony Newley. Right? Jackie Collins. Sister to Joan Collins, who was married to Anthony Newley, so she was the sister-in-law, and she actually she actually appears on that uh, the Merv Griffin interview I played a while back. Wow! But what's going on with his website? Jackie Collins. Oh, there's audio clips. Wait a second, so, there's something wrong with his website. It's hold on. We have some clips of the show, though. I mean. On Charles McGrew's site, uh -oh. this 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 feels like a dead link. Let me click it. There's no way this site's gonna be still be go. No, not found. Of course not. No, no. Well, anyway, I'll keep researching this stuff. M -m -m -mac -mac Max Headroom. Anyway, as far as today's episode is entitled "Motor Physical Omen." And uh, I'll tell you the story of how this came about. I love that title, by the way, Motor Physical Omen. Wow, that's some title. Um, so, yesterday I had this P 
piece of scrap paper, notebook paper that I, I, I crumpled up. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe I'll do something really quick. I'll uncrumple it, and I'll in like two minutes, I'll, I'll draw like a show art for the Overnightscape. So I started drawing it. I wrote the Overnightscape on the bottom and did all these lines and stuff. And then, like, what should I make the title? And so I looked at my... I have a file with show title ideas, and this word motor physical kept coming up. It's sort of obviously a, a variant on metaphysical, but just motor physical. And it's kind of weird because motor... Like the like motor and physical are sort of related, but I always love the term motor physical. I don't think anyone else ever came up with that term. So I wrote down motor physical. I'm like, what am I gonna put after motor physical? And I'm like, I couldn't think of anything. So I wrote motor physical promenades. That sounds good. And then after I wrote it down, I'm like, motor physical promenades. That's not good. That sucks. I'm like, wait a minute. What am I gonna do? All right, I'll add another word under there. So I added bungalow. So it now says motor physical promenades bungalow. And I'm like, no, that sucks. Motor physical bungalow? No, that's horrible. So anyway, I took a picture of this little crumple up piece of paper. I have the paper right here on my phone. I'm like, yeah, this is not working out. And because it was all crumpled up and there were all these, you know, the idea was going to be very rough looking. Um, so finally I, I'm like, eh, maybe th- let me take a look at it. So I brought it into Photoshop and I, Started playing around with it, with the idea of just isolating the letters, getting rid of all the junk, all the shading, and all the crum- crumples, and all the lines I drew, and the art I drew. So it was coming out, it looked pretty good, and I'm like, listen, how about if I can find a word inside the other words? And I very quickly I found, in promenades, omen. So now it read, motor physical omen. I'm like, yes, that's good, that sounds good. Motor physical omen. What is a motor physical omen? It's an omen, a portent. It's a prediction about the future. That's motor physical. It's like metaphysical, but with motors, like 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 with motorcycles and vans and stuff and cars. I know it does. It sounds good. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it sounds good. So I really, I, I in Photoshop, I really kept going with uh, fixing it up and uh, you know fixing up the letters and deleting all of the junk, and finally get to what you see here. And I applied this swamp green color that just really seems to work and I just love the way this looks so that's the story of Motor Physical Omen today's show title and show art I like it (laughs) it has a good ring to it Motor Physical Omen alright a little bit later now back on the porch smoking some partigas here Flor de Tobaccos the flower of tobaccos since 1845 I guess Partagas has like a new visual identity. This is a, a a white label that has some embossing, and the the logo itself, the graphics are uh, white and black and silver, silver uh, embossing or whatever. No, silver ink. Yes. Um, you never got into Partagas that much, and I think it is pronounced Partagas because you might think it's Partagas, but it is. Uh, I remember my tobacconist down in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, in the '90s. I used to I used to go to a Little Taste of Havana there, and uh, it was really it was really great to have a tobacconist. I know I've talked about this in the past how I don't have a tobacconist anymore, but to have a you know go to a um, cigar store and have someone you can talk to about it and just recommend things. And he was a, he was an interesting guy. 
I have no idea if, if that store is still there. I know it was there for a while because I remember looking it up. But I don't know. It's so far in the future now. We don't know if it's still there. Who knows if it's still there. Um, but I remember him talking about Partagas. He's like, uh, Partagas to me is... Uh, sorry, having a little bit of activity here. L- lawn work going on, mail deliveries, all sorts of stuff going on. Anyway, I remember him saying... It's like, yeah, you know, he, w- he was going through all the different, you know, like the Macanudo. And that was back when the, sh- the short story was like the big cigar, the Hemingway short story. If you could get it, they still make it. You know, it's like a little small cigar uh, from uh, Fuente. Yeah. But then, you know, he's like, you know, Partagas. He's like, I can't smoke Partagas anymore. It's, it, it, it's just like smoking air. There's no flavor. So he, he was against Partagas back then. Yeah, this one, I know this is not the typical. This is, I got this in that, that bundle. Uh, it's all right. It's okay. It's pretty mellow. It's a pretty mellow cigar. Some partying is going on. What is this? En- endless sounds, motors, leaf blowing. Is it leaf blowing? Ugh, God. Anyway. I watched a little bit more of 20 Minutes into the Future with Max Headroom and uh, definitely reminds me a lot of the that sort of dark humor from something like uh, RoboCop. I don't know. RoboCop was around the same time, right? I'm trying to remember what year RoboCop. Maybe RoboCop was 84 or 85. But yeah, that sort of uh, almost sort of cartoonish, very dark vision of, of a future, sort of how our world is going, you know, becoming more corporate and people becoming stupider and remember the show on uh, RoboCop. I'll buy, I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> I don't know if one influenced the other or if it was just the general zeitgeist in 85, sort of anticipating, projecting sort of the foibles of the mid-1980s onto the, the future and what, what things might be like, how, how things could get worse. And they definitely were right in some ways, you know. Partially, partially right. Anyway, um, yeah. <coughs> but yeah, I need to, I couldn't, you know, I need to really figure out what's the story. Because I think that guy that runs that site has some of the Max Headroom show. Uh, I'm have to, I'll have to search deeper. I know, some t- I know in the past I've actually had to buy DVDs from people because the stuff's not online anywhere, you know. But if the guy that's running that Max Headroom site is saying this is not publicly traded, it's probably not going to be anywhere. Anyway, um, on Saturday, this noises. You know, I want to have come here and have some nice partigas and there's a endless, endless noise pollution right across the street from me. Look, now, now here's a riding mower. Does it ever end? Um, yeah, so on Saturday I went to see my father down, uh, down in Bridgewater. It's about a, you know it's about a forty-five minute ride from here. And uh, on the way there, I decided to go to a few stores I've been meaning to go to for a long time now. There's a new store called Total Wine there on Forty-six near near um, Woodside Woodland Park, this town formerly known as West Patterson, but the town of Patterson. It's such a bad, such a has such a bad reputation. The town wanted to change its name, so 
so it wasn't associated with Patterson anymore. They, they kept the uh, initials WP, but they changed it to Woodland Park. Yeah. You, listen, if, if you're... Yeah, you, if you share the name with a nearby town that has a bad reputation, you got to change the name. So Total Wine. I had never been to one of these Total Wines. This uh, was uh, built on in what was formerly a Babies R Us. Right? When the whole Toys R Us empire collapsed... That same shopping plaza had a Toys R Us, and that's the place I went to get my... Oh, my God. Listen to this crap. That's the place... How many leaves are left at this point? Please. Uh, this is like... That's where I went in 99, before Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out to buy the Star Wars toys at midnight. Uh, it was like a week before the movie came out, and it was pretty cool. I remember I got one of the uh, droid control ships, like that half circle thing circular spaceships you know what I'm talking about uh yeah and that's also the shopping plaza that had Apollo flags a flag store and after 9-11 everyone was desperate to get their hands on uh, American flags to show how patriotic they were and that they were they were with America they're against the terrorists I don't know I would kind of assume most people in America would be against that but people felt they needed to display flags to show that they were that you know as, as Bush said you're either with us or you're with the terrorists right so, they, so everyone so there, this every time there were lines across the parking lot at this store to buy American flags of course all these patriots before oh my god this noise all these super uber patriots before 9-11 they didn't have a flag to speak of and now they had to wait online to get flags yeah yeah Anyway, this is where Total Wine was. So I finally stopped. Are they going to be done at some point? Look, he's 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 uh, blowing his shoes clean of leaf debris. It's got to be. He's got to be almost done with this leaf blowing situation. I mean, doesn't he run out of gas at some point? It's gas powered, right? I mean, there's a little gas tanker. How much how how much gas does it take? I mean, stop, please. Now he, now he's blowing his pants off. Okay, please. I think we're almost done here, right? Taking off the backpack, and now we're starting up the lawnmower. Okay. Oh God! One noise for another. Anyway, puffing on my partigas here. Um, yeah. So I went to Total Wine. This place is enormous. It's like this massive. Um, liquor store, you know, and in, and in New Jersey we have a particular law that all alcoholic beverages have to be sold at liquor stores, so you cannot buy any alcohol at a supermarket or a 7-Eleven or anything with very few exceptions um, so wine beer, liquor, etc all has to, oh wow the sound of silence, nice so they, right it all has to be sold at liquor stores, so this place has, it's enormous, it's like well, like a Babies R Us. It used to be a Babies R Us. I guess that's a pretty big store too, right? I don't think I ever went to Babies R Us when it was uh, around. I never had a baby, so yeah. Not in this timeline, at least. Anyway, the place was enormous. And I was on the way to see my father, so I didn't want to lollygag around. But I, uh, the place, it was rather impressive. It was huge. But I went to the Mescal section, which they had a lot. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like the largest selection of Mescal I've ever seen. You know, that's the... Uh, one of the rising uh, 
uh, spirits here in America is mezcal, which is uh, misunderstood. People think it's tequila, and most people I talk to have had some tequila mishap in their in their youth, where they drank way too much tequila and became violently ill, and oh, I can't touch this stuff. But mezcal is different. It's amazing. In fact, Simon uh, on the exit ramp was talking about mezcal. I guess he <coughs> he wasn't aware that I was a big fan of mezcal as well. We were talking about mezcal on the exit ramp. You should check out that exit ramp. It was a good one. Anyway, I couldn't sit outside and smoke and drink because it was... I didn't smoke or drink during the exit ramp. I just sat next to my Christmas tree next to the fire because it was so freezing outside. It's a good one, though. But anyway, so I went to the mezcal section, and there's so many ones I never heard of before. And um, <coughs> so, I, 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 so I got my phone and went on mezcalreviews.com. I started looking up all the ones that were on there. A lot of them didn't even come up on mezcal reviews. But the ones that did, every, almost every single one was like two stars out of five, two and a half stars out of five. Everyone got horrible ratings. And again, I was only looking at the ones that were like thir- in the 30s you know, of dollars. I didn't want to spend a lot. A lot of them were in the, you know, 100, 150. I'm like, yeah, no, I want something 30-something. But uh, they all got horrible ratings. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to buy anything. I'm wasting too much time here anyway. But then I saw there's this thing called Sotal. Sotol. It's, it's a new beverage. It's similar I saw Desert Door, Texas Sotol, Sotol, S-O-T-O-L, Sotol. So it's a new kind of, it's like a Sotol is like a kind of agave, I guess, and it's uh, made in Texas. And so eventually I'm going to try that too. That looked kind of cool. But the bottle was really nice, which makes me think that the drink's not that good. A lot of times the, the better the bottle, the worse the drink, right? Because, I mean, something like, you know, like the Del Maguey series, they, uh, they had just have those green bottles. They almost look like wine bottles, but that's really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so in some ways, I, I'm worried about that one because it has a beautiful bottle. So anyway, I, I continued on down 46, and I always stop at this coffee shop called PJ's Coffee. It's uh, the coffee of New Orleans. It's a really good coffee. I usually get a flavored coffee, and I usually buy my coffee beans there as well. They're horribly expensive, but they're pretty good. And uh, every time I stop there... It's right next to a shopping strip mall that has the game room store, right, which is currently sort of called a a man cave store. They have everything from billiards to darts to video games and stuff. But this store had an outlet. They had a a location in the Woodbridge Center Mall, which was like my – the ultimate mall in the 80s for me growing up. Used to go there all the time, and the game room store was this amazing store on the upper level by – one of the anchor stores. They had a bunch of anchors back then. There's no more anchors. I think that it was Stearns or Orbox or something or A&S or something back then. Last, the last one that was in there was Lord & Taylor. Then they went belly up. you know. So that was the end of that. But they were right by the entrance to the department store on the upper level, right? The game room store. And, and across the mall was Walden Books, right? And those were two of my favorite places because the game room store – Beyond having, um, <clears throat> you know, they'd have like chess sets, billiards, darts, things like that. They also had video games. They had a, they had a row of cocktail ma- video game machines. And the one, Gapless, right, sometimes known as Galaga 3, uh, they, they would play the, the attract mode. And you'd hear it from like halfway down the mall. Right? Um, just such a haunting memory of the 80s and the mall there and everything. And... Uh, they also had all of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, all those kind of games. 
board games, D&D, role-playing games, all that kind of stuff. So I always loved going to the game room store. And uh, and then downstairs, uh, I think it was in that same wing, was uh, the Spaceport Arcade. Yeah, another great arcade. So a while back, a couple years ago, I, I went and I parked at the Lord & Taylor because for a while that was my favorite place to park. Walked through the Lord & Taylor into the, into the mall, and then I saw... I was like reliving the past. Remember my Island run? I used to drive down to my uh, storage unit there in Island and then go to the strip mall with the Toys R Us and the uh, Pearl Paint and all that. Then I would go to the mall, park by the Lord and Taylor, and walk in. So I, a couple years ago, I did the same thing just for old time's sake. And I walked into the mall, and the game room store was closed. It was gone. You could look inside there. There's a little crack in the door. Right? It, they had that black substance up on the windows, but you could look through and you could see like the gutted store that used to be the game room store, inc- including the elevated part in the back. There was like a race part in the back. And I, it's still there. I just saw it the other day. What's up with this part, I guess? It's kind of hard on the draw. Maybe that, maybe my tobacconist was right. What the hell's up with part, I guess? Anyway, so I stopped. This time, I, before I got to the coffee place, I stopped by the game room store finally. And I couldn't believe this place is still in existence. And they had, they had a ton of stuff. So they were, they were selling uh, pinball machines, these custom uh, multi-arcade machines, skee-ball for, for the home, right? Really high-end, like, man cave stuff that I can – I am nowhere in the position of space or money to buy any of that kind of stuff, you know. But anyway – so I, I figured I was looking for some decks of cards for Flea Devil, but nothing really caught my eye. Then I asked the guy, oh, do you have any Mahjong sets? So I figured I would ask for something. And he's like, no, nah, well, here's one we have. They had one that had, I guess it was like a Chinese Mahjong set made of bamboo. And I, start, I, started, I said, oh, you know, I used, to, I used to go to your location in Woodbridge. He's like, oh, yeah, in Woodbridge. He's like, oh, yeah, I used to be the manager of that store. So I was talking to this guy about, about the old days in the store. He's like, yeah, you know, it was um, Dave and Buster's going in, into the Woodbridge Mall that caused the uh, – game room sort of closed and he was I couldn't really figure out what he he was saying like because Dave and Buster's came in it wasn't that they also had video games it was that the mall was like requiring all these stores to renovate their space and it was this huge expense or something but so it's kind of it kind of caused them to shut down at Woodbridge and he's like yeah you know like we were doing a boom in business before COVID because people would come in with their kids and like this is the store I used to come to when I was a kid in the 80s right I kind of forgot that the age I'm at, like I would have, if I had kids, I would have been bringing them there like in the 90s or the the early 2000s, you know, to the game room store. This is where I used to go. And now that's a long time to go too. So he seemed very bitter because he, I mean, everyone loved that store. It was like the most unique store. It was the greatest store in a mall ever, the game room store. If you you have a time travel, uh, just go there. Go there in like, uh, I don't know, 81, 82, 83. That's a good time to go there. You know, just check it out. You may even see me hanging around there. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Don't hassle me in the past. Uh, yeah, listen. <laughs> but then would I remember it if you did? Or No, I don't know. <laughs> listen, there's, uh, there's better, uh, more things to worry about than what would happen if time travelers met you in the past. Well, I'm sure you're not going to be like, Hi, young Frank. I listen to your show in the future. You'd be like, Hey, you like video games? And <laughs> No, that sounds a bit creepy. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Forget about going to the game room store. Why don't you come? Why don't you come give me time travel technology, like right here, so I, I can time travel as well? 
the hell is that rolling down the street? It almost looks like a little miniature tumbleweed or something. That's how I was reading. They had, someone tried to uh, submit like a tumbleweed as an emoji, and they rejected it. Yeah, I've been really into emoji. I think next time we'll talk about my whole like emoji trip I've been going on. Anyway, so it was a great, <coughs> a great conversation. I didn't buy anything there though. But then I went to, um, I went to the coffee place. I think I got Santa's blend, chocolate and cinnamon coffee, and uh, went to see my father. It was a great visit. I was talking to him about morphic resonance, and I, I sent him a link. He was he was very fascinated by uh, Rupert Sheldrake's talk on morphic resonance. Uh, most people never heard of that, you know. And maybe if. The theories I'm talking about are valid. Maybe maybe it's better people don't know, don't know about it. Maybe there should be no further research on the topic. If you value your individuality, that is. Um, yeah, it's a great visit, and I figured um, once I went to the game room store, I'm like, listen, I think I have to go to the original location of. I think I have to go to Woodbridge. So I did. So I, I when I left my father's place, I drove down. It was so surreal. I don't know. I was in a weird mood, and it was like a weird overcast afternoon. So I drove down uh, Chimney Rock Road there onto 22. I picked up 287 South. And the whole time, it was like so weird. It was almost like that whole trip felt like I was like in a video game or something or like in a virtual reality. So, you know, I got onto – you get onto uh, 1 North there, and then you uh, – and I, listen, I knew I was going into the belly of the beast, going to shopping malls this close to Christmas. I knew it was going to be a madhouse. It wasn't too bad, though. And the guy at Game Room Store, game room store even said, like, they kind of ruined. The last time I went to Woodbridge, I was kind of horrified at the state of the place. And the guy's like, said, yeah, they ruined the mall, you know. So anyway, um, yeah, I drove down, drove up Route 1. It's just that weird section there with all those power lines and stuff. I almost sort of don't remember there being that many power lines over there. Then you take an overpass. And I wanted to park right by that kind of remote parking lot, which was uh, where uh, Nobody Beats the Wiz used to be. And many years earlier, <laughs> Arcadian Gardens, the, the home, the, home st- the, 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 the garden store, the gardening store, Arcadian Gardens. Oh, my God. What a, what a primal memory. And, in fact, the store there that's currently Macy's, yes, there's still a Macy's there. Used to be Bambergers. The same building, the same exact building used to be Bambergers. And that is where some of my earliest memories are. My mother, we used to, we were living in New Brunswick. I mean, my mother would take me there shopping. I remember the, there was a fountain with clear plastic rods on it. And some of my earliest memories are right there. The old Menlo Park Mall, right? The original one was like an outdoor mall. Then they made it in interior. And then around 1990, they tore most of it down. Almost all of it, but the, the Macy's and or the Bambergers kept, was, was preserved, and they built a brand-new mall there. In fact, I remember right before they tore it all down, probably around 88 or so, I went there to look for – that was when my – 88 or 89 when my Beatles mania was really starting, and I, I remember buying um, a cassette of uh, – I think it was uh, Abbey Road. <coughs> yeah, so I remember that old mall with the curved – um, the curved brown tiles on the walls and the brown and orange schemes, very 70s. So there's this weird alleyway that, um, right, so Nobody Beats the Wiz was there. It's now like a laser tag place or something. And um, in this alleyway, 
there's this there's this empty lot and again you could look through there's this chained up door but you could look through the cracks and you can see uh, a vis- you can see a vision you can see a part of the original mall right that was that that an old entrance to the mall that was there on by the uh, by the Macy's structure so it's just like looking into the past so I walked in there and I, I, I went to the uh, what is considered the worst rainforest cafe in in the world the one at, at Menlo um, I went to the gift shop hoping to see if they had any t-shirts uh, they don't have t-shirts anymore this rainforest cafe is completely like degenerated at this point you know. but yeah there's a video that I, I mentioned a few weeks a few months back a guy that went to every rainforest cafe in the country and <laughs> stated unequivocally that the Menlo one was the worst one ever <laughs> So I walked up and down the mall, really didn't really go in many stores. I did notice that there was a um, – in the food court, there was a Stewart's root beer. But they just had generic like hot dogs and hamburgers, which was what Stewart's had in the past. But they didn't, they didn't even have root beer on tap. They just had the bottles of Stewart's branded root beer. So I really do wonder, you know, what is the status of the Stewart's IP, right? Does someone just own the logo and stuff? It was good to see. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting store – just to look at. Like, it's a root beer place, you know. Look at my obsession with root beer. Um, man, it's cold out here. Anyway, um, so, ooh, it's warm right here. Yeah. So, yeah, I walked up and down and didn't really, because it, it felt very, it was very, very, very surreal. It, it, especially in walking around Menlo, it, it felt, again, it felt like I was in VR. It was very bizarre. Um, You know, and I, I passed by uh, Santa Claus, you know. Kind of reminded me of that uh, in the, the movie Clerks by Kevin Smith. They mentioned uh, the Easter Bunny at Menlo. They mentioned Menlo at that one. Uh, I actually saw Santa. He got up. He looked a little concerned about something or confused. What was going on with Santa? I don't know. But there was a store called True Believers. It's like toys and comic books, right? So I, I went in there, and it was... I thought it would be a comic book store, but it's not. It's like a figurine store. It was. It's one of these things where over the years I noticed so all the comic book stores started selling more and more action figures and figurines and statues and stuff, which I felt was kind of like at least comic books ostensibly are something you can read for pleasure, not just collect. But these uh, toys and statues and things, especially those Funko Pops, half the store was Funko Pops. Thousands and thousands of them. Um, to me, it was uh, nightmarish because they're pointless. Co- Listen, that's just my opinion. They're pointless collectibles that just take up space, and it's not an investment. I don't. I, I know some of them are super valuable, but it's just. I, th- I think it's a. Uh, and I know a lot of collecting is collecting is like that. You just collect it to have it, but whatever. Uh, what are you going to stare at this thing on a shelf or something? I don't know. But it was kind of nightmarish, uh, and I overheard someone say, "Yeah, I think I'm going to pull the trigger on that Elvira pop." And this person there was like, "Oh, Elv- Elvira, huh?" Well, I mean, if I was going to get a Funko Pop, I could imagine Elvira, the Mistress of the Dark, you know, the um, TV show host, horror host, and uh, three pinball machines now for Elvira. Might not be a bad. I do not have a single one. I do not have a Funko Pop. I will. I will not get any. It's ridiculous. That is, <coughs> I'm against them. 
but anyway that was that was kind of uh kind of nightmarish and bizarre so then i um I walked through the Macy's thinking about how this department store, when it was Bamberger's, was some of my earliest memories in this place. And I almost got lost in there. It was kind of awesome. I know I was looking for the, the exit by the parking lot that would get me closer to my car. And I got lost in there. It was wild. I was so happy. I was like lost in a department store. I got back to my car and there was just like this endless line of cars because I had to go back over that ramp, that overpass to go on to uh, continue on one north to go to Woodbridge Center Mall. And uh, there was a constant stream of cars coming the other way as well. So I kind of nudged out, kind of hoping someone would take pity on me and slow down. And this one person, like, <laughs> like screeched around and, like, and like went swerved into the other lane to get around me. Just seeing that, I was trying, can you, under, can you have a little bit of compassion? There was literally no, no gaps. I had, I had to sort of take, I, ha- I had to be aggressive and nudge out. And finally, someone kind of begrudgingly had to stop. Otherwise, they would have smashed into me. But luckily, where I was going, there was no traffic. But trying to get on on one south, endless. And I mean, from the people from the parking lot trying to go on one south, ridiculous. So I got up to Woodbridge, which is like, I don't know, five-minute drive from there. The two malls are very close together. I just parked by that, like, the main entrance. And uh, it's this sort of monolithic, the Lord and Taylor it's just closed, but it's kind of lit up inside. You can see inside to the devastation inside. There's like the, the emptiness, a very liminal space. I took some pictures of that. Pretty cool stuff. And, uh, yeah, the mall itself is just kind of really, it's, it's a big mall. It was, they don't even have a food court. It was before they put food courts in malls, and they never added a food court to Woodbridge. It was a cross shape. They had four anchor stores and then this center, pl- center pl- place. Uh, it was really kind of sad. I mean, I uh, I visited the location because there was nothing there. There was all the stores were closed, and the entrance to the department store was closed. And there was like one person hanging out over there. So I went over. I looked in, looked at the crack, and it's still there. The crack is still there. There's lights on inside what used to be the game room store, exactly like I saw it a couple years ago. And uh, also looked over at the uh, what had been the Walden books, and. Um, didn't really go to many stores. I think I stopped by an FYE. That store is still there, sort of the last remnant of the Sam Goody type stores or Musicland type stores. Um, they too just sell a lot of figurines and other junk, Japanese candies and stuff. It does feel very. It, it feels uh, these malls obviously have degenerated over time. Listen, it's not the age of the mall anymore. And I did go to Dave and Buster's, <coughs> and you know I have a card. I was thinking of putting some money on the card. I went up to the kiosk to try to get – it couldn't read my card. I'm like, all right, my card is shot. Then I went to one of the machines, and it said, oh, you don't have enough tickets. So the, the machine could read my card. But uh, anyway, then I left and just uh, – from there, easy, just go up go up Woodbridge Center Drive, turn left on uh, 1 South. And there's actually um, a Joe Canals liquor store right there. I almost went, but I decided not to. And then you get you get right on Parkway North from there, and uh, easy to get home from there. Yeah, it was a weird t- it was a weird experience, you know, because it, it was just me. I wasn't recording, and I was just sort of silently, sort of wandering through the current physical incarnations of cherished locations from my personal past.
Anyways, with that, I'd like to say thank you for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. I am your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in Nutley, New Jersey, in December 2022. We're here in the Onsug, a radio station inside a book. And you can get the book, just go to onsug.com, buy the book, or download a PDF of the book for free. It does cost money to buy the book, but uh, I don't make any money off it. It's a non-commercial project. Um, that edition is from uh, last year, 2021, and I am working on the new edition for 2023, making great progress on the new book, the new edition of the book. It's going to be so much better. Very happy with the direction it's going, but it's going to be months and months of work. So I'm aiming for next summer, summer 2023, to get this book out. But, of course, you can download the latest PDF to see how I'm doing on the book. And uh, each month, I'll, I'll, it'll be my work in progress, uh, <clears throat> for the new print book and also the new the new full edition you know um i'm re i'm rebuilding the entire thing it is just terribly terribly uh cumbersome or not cumbersome it's just a lot of work you know to, to rebuild everything but hopefully this will be it i don't have to rebuild it again because i just had it in in like a ro- the wrong program and now i have it in a, a much better program affinity publisher and i'm you know able to control the typography better and yada yada you see what i'm saying but yeah, this is uh, on s- the Onsug or O N S U G Onsug, O N S U G. It stands for Overnightscape Underground. And uh, every month we have dozens and dozens of new shows, dozens of hosts. We have uh, this show, the Overnightscape, and then there's Overnightscape Central, hosted by PQ River. You can you can get involved in that show. Just listen to the latest episode, and your your voice can be heard on that show. You are invited. And many other great shows as well. Uh, constantly, uh, just go to onsug.com to hear the latest shows. Everything is archived in the archive. Currently on the Internet Archive, just on the sidebar there, click on Onsug Radio. And uh, it's, it's organized by channels. And the channels are all, if you look in the book, there's a, in the bracket, there's a three-digit number. That's where you can find a show. Over 10,000 episodes, over 13,000 hours of material has been archived. It's over a year and a half of solid audio. Amazing, amazing, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Um, quality stuff, like you can't hear anywhere else. We really have a unique content, right, a unique uh, kind of ra- like this rambling, rampling style. Um, just talk about everything. So much unique information in this archive, and it just keeps growing. It's an, as I mentioned, it's a non-commercial project. We're very focused on people listening in the near and far future, so it's... Uh, it's a project you can help out too. You know, wherever you are, whenever you are, uh, really help to perpetuate this, preserve all of the files. We don't want to be like the Max Headroom show where they lost all these episodes. Everything is preserved, and eventually, this the all the audio will be inside the book in some way. I'm still working on that. My dream is for the book. You open the book physically, a physical paper book, and you touch one of the listings, and you start to hear it. And I know that that's that's a bit, that's a, that also is twenty minutes in the future. You know, we're not quite there yet with the technology. Of course, I you know there are little MP3 players that can take micro SD cards, and I did play around with that <coughs> for the previous edition, but that was just way too much of everything for me to deal with at that time. But I really want, and then also, of course, in in the metaverses in the future, 
Even though right now they're they're if you go online they're endlessly bad mouthing the metaverse, saying it sucks, it's the worst thing ever. I think eventually there will be a metaverse, a three D universe you go into, and the book will exist as a three D book in as a as a digital object inside the metaverse, as well. So I'm actually looking looking at that. I want to make sure all the pages are typeset at the same size and everything. Even though the book is three or four thousand pages long. As a digital book, it doesn't have to be gigantic. It can be small and still contain thousands of pages, obviously. Anyway, that's the dream. But right now, all the audio is there on the Internet Archive. You can hear any show I've ever done or anyone on the channel has ever done. It's all preserved. It's for free forever. And now you know about it, that you're listening to this. You know about the Onsug. And uh, we can be, it's a lifetime of listening pleasure, and we are your radio pals. We'll always be here for you in the uh, the archives of the Onsug. Yes. Anyway, kind of kind of like Edison Carter became computerized and went into the box, and now he's m- m- Max Headroom, we are going to go into a different sort of box, a box of amazement, astonishment even, in, 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 in a cosmic regard. It is a journey into sound, and the sound waves will give you very pleasure, known as The Other Side.
If I make my decision one way, my friends are going to hate me. And if I make my decision the other way, my parents are going to kill me. Well, I think you may be exaggerating the point just a little bit. Besides, aren't you forgetting someone? Who? Jesus Christ.
you might have experienced as a kid in America. Yeah, better. Better? Yeah. It, did you ever used to go to pajama parties? Was that on the cards as a kid? I was working. Always working? Yeah. Because you were a child prodigy, were you not? Yeah. So from three, you were tinkling those ivories? Yeah, little before. Little before? So my father had me practicing. It was good. Doesn't it do your head in, though, to just to have all those high expectations? Yeah. It does your head. <laughs> does it? And how do you ever have a childhood? I mean, were you able to have your wild years? Are you having your wild years now? I'm ha truthfully, I'm having it now. It's um, I've n like I've never been to a party like this before. I was just standing. You're gonna laugh your butt off, but I was just standing <laughs> listening, going. I started crying because Did you? because I went. I know this sounds really naff, but I was like um playing concerts when I was little, and I and I never went to parties and stuff. So just. Coming to a party was like, wow, you know, I miss that. Well, you're having it now. That's why we're having one now for you. Good. Yeah, very it's good. really good. Do you think that there's kind of um, an electricity in the air when you get a bunch of women together that it has a particular kind of charge? Well, I'll tell you, when the women want to play together and, and um, goof around, when they're being catty and competitive, that's what I think on the music business side, a lot of times the women... You know, you're looking going, yeah, just watch her go down the chart. She's going to go quick. <laughs> there isn't that camaraderie like you feel when you're just singing Grease together. Yeah. 
So that, that's what you feel here, is more yeah. of a camaraderie. Oh, I'm really glad about that, because that's better, isn't it? Well, the other is just, uh, you know, that's why I wrote Cornflake Girl. It's not the idea of a sisterhood where you go, wait a minute, we can be cows. But isn't it, but isn't it good? It's, it's good when we're not cows. Oh, good. Well, we're going to stick around and be the anti-cow tonight on My Pajama Party. But first, I want to know how much men and women really know about each other. And we're going to find out by going to Claudia and his and hers. Yes, it's that time for his and hers. What do you make of those apples there? Aren't you, aren't you lucky, mate? <laughs> <laughs> Completely lucky. Now this brings to mind the kind of beach etiquette that you experience on the beach when there's women there, topless. Mm. Of course, they don't have too much topless sunbathing in America, but you know, men never know what to look at. They're supposed to pretend it's really cool. You know, they're really cool about women with no tops on. But, but they're always looking. They're always looking. I always look, though, as well. I'm yeah, always like checking I, up. You know, but I think we're looking at different things. I'm always going. Oh my God! I know she uses margarine and not butter. I mean, what technique <laughs> does she use? Is she going to the gym? You know, I'm. I, it's a different it's thing. It's a comparative thing. And my boyfriend is salivating. You know, it's and, little, and it's not yeah. over margarine or butter. Yeah, <laughs> actually. But but sometimes I look at women and I think, well, I can see why men think that women are great because you know there's so many variations on a theme. It brings out the Viking in me. Like Is there when, a Viking deep inside yeah, you? Yeah, when there's a gorgeous woman, and especially when, when she's with an idiot, I kind of go, you know, if I was six foot three, and like I used to be in another life, I would just steal her. And he wouldn't have a chance. Whoa, watch, know, out, that, watch out for that Viking and Tori. Yeah, there's that moment of, you know, I think the men wouldn't admit to looking at other men the no, way I don't that think so. we, but I think they do. I think they do. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a look at your new video now, Tallulah. Have
Hello. Hey, Dad. Yeah, tell the new guy that there's no rain for tomorrow. Yeah, so he better be ready to go. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> David? Yeah. Hey you guys, what's going on? Here I am at San Diego Comic-Con International 2006. With me is the director, writer, and cast of the movie Hero Tomorrow. It is actually an independent superhero film that is premiering tonight at Comic-Con. With me right here is Ted. He is the director of the film. Now, I heard that you spent over three years creating, writing, getting this, ready, this movie ready to go. Absolutely. We spent three years uh, just doing the script. And then beyond that, we, I spent a year storyboarding. And then we spent three years in you know, a combination of production and post-production. So seven years total. Wow. So what are you most proud of with the film? Oh, God. Uh, really, everything. I mean, the performances, I think, are great. I think we really did spend a lot of time getting that story right. We did focus groups. You know, we did almost anything we could to just, you know, at every stage, right. make it something we'd be proud of. And uh, you play the character of David, correct? Yes. How was it? How did you find your character? Um, it's the first film project I've really worked on, besides messing around with my buddies. And uh, it's kind of right up my alley, this fun, fun, you know, in love kind of a guy. Um, doing his own thing, um, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. And is this your first time to Comic-Con? Uh, yes, it is. I've been to the Pittsburgh Comic-Con, but this is the first time in San Diego, and um, this one's a lot bigger, so. <laughs> and are you excited that your movie is premiering tonight? I think this is probably the best venue we could have hoped for ever, so I'm very excited, a little bit nervous, of course, but I think it's going to be amazing. And you are co-writer and co-producer of the film, right? Correct. What are you most proud of with the film? You know, I'm most proud of these guys here. They did such a wonderful job acting. I mean, one thing we've gotten out of all our focus groups is that uh, they're so impressed with the acting and the way that we really sold uh, sold the, this whole story. And, and it's thanks to all these folks. And I'm really proud of being associated with Ted. Uh, Ted's a great director. I think he's going to do great things in the future. Um, he's got a great sense of story. It's a really wonderful project, I think. I'm really proud to, uh, to be involved with it. So now that you finished your masterpiece, Ted, what is going to be next? What's happening next? Well, next we have to sell this film. I mean, that's that's our, our big goal now. We're trying to get the word out about it. Um, you know, we're can I put a plug out to our website and MySpace? Please do. It's herotomorrow.com, and the MySpace page is uh, MySpace slash Movie. What has the internet done for you as a director, as a creator of a film? 
Well, it, it speeds everything up so much. You know, we're able to just shoot revisions back and forth. Um, I'm even able to upload sometimes like animatics. You know, we had a scene that was really kind of, I don't want to say it's an effects movie, but we have one weird kind of dreamy, acid trippy scene. And we really had to kind of animate it before we shot it. And we were able to just put that up online and, and get everybody looking at it and approving it before we started to shoot. Well, we are so excited to see the film tonight. Make sure you guys check out their websites, herotomorrow.com yes. and myspace.com slash herotomorrow.
had one of these earlier this week because I went to this bright new swinging London club filled with firm young hindquarters. But the funny thing was they were shaken around to a lot of old music. Let's see. Look through any of today's music magazines and what do you see? Pop stars who look like they need a flea bath. I mean, haven't these guys ever heard of IMAC? Whatever happened to the days of the new romantics when glamour was queen and we could be heroes just for one day? Or just for one night? I'm at Arcadia, the London club for new, new romantics, future futurists, and evergreen electronic popsters, and they are the Roma movement. It's a new scene for those drawn together by early 80s electro-pop and fashion. Forget old school, this is gold school. We like the same sort of eye makeup, so we say, let's get a club. What attracts you to Arcadia tonight? The glamour, the glamour. I'm... Uh, I mean, the glamour. But glamour has never gone out of style, not like the music. What stopped 80s pop? It was Live Aid that killed it all. Everybody trying to be soulful and humane. But since when has pop been about humanity? Pop's about being plastic and being a freak. One guy who knows all about being a freak is the original new romantic, Steve Strange. He spent most of the 80s playing dress-up. We were going out to shock, and I mean, you know, we, I mean, we used to take the tubes, we used to get on the buses, and I mean, our costumes were very much like in your face, but to us, it didn't even register like that. It's a hard look to keep up, isn't definitely it? Definitely not <laughs> one that, you know, you don't get your pictures at the end of the night, definitely. It's <laughs> start at the night, and no pictures later than 12 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> at Arcadia, it's well past midnight, but hey, these people are grown ups, almost. How old were you when this music first came out? Um, about two. Three? Oh, God, it was about five. Okay, so they're young, but it's still good to see them enjoying the old favourites, isn't it? I have no problem with it in retrospect, but the idea that it's actually coming back and that a whole new generation are now looking at Duran Duran on top of the pop and saying, I want to be like that. It's a bit sad, isn't it? It's not bloody retro. Everyone keeps talking about Steve Strange and stuff, but... Tell them to go away. Step aside. The new guard has arrived. Well, hold on here. I appreciate that you're doing something new, but I do hear Duran Duran in the background. What do you say to that? Well, no one's got any record deals, though, so... Uh... But a Romo number one might not be far off because the scene's got plenty of new bands. Brighton's Plastic Fantastic don't have a record deal, but they do have the looks, the sound, and unfortunately, the attitude of the 80s. So where are you going to go with this kind of look and this kind of sound? Rio de Janeiro. I'm going to Rio de Janeiro. Sorry, I can't speak for anybody else. <laughs> what kind of audience is out there for the kind of music that you play? The ones who come to our gigs. You're coming to our gig tonight, aren't you? I'll be seeing you sooner or later. But don't hold your breath. Okay. <laughs> Another combo keen to hit the big time are sexists. They think the charts lack glamour. I think pop music is basically fashion. It's like a pendulum. You know, it swings one way and swings the absolute opposite way. I think there's a lot of pop groups coming up who actually want to look like pop groups rather than looking like they're down the allotment digging potatoes. And it's not just the bright young things who come down to check out the talent. I've always had this love and this passion for electronic music, though, you know, and I always, I think it's sexy. You know, it's sexy, it's glamorous, it's sleazy, and it's sad as well, so I always keep coming back to electronic music. Yep, some people just can't stop coming back for more, but for others, once was enough. With the old scene, it was like image, it was like designers, 
and there's a lot more to it as well. But I mean, I wish him the best of luck anyway. I have a theory on things. It's a bit like Live Aid and Band Aid. When it happened, it happened once, and that was the best time. So, what more can I say? <laughs>